The views and opinions expressed on Red Planet are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect those of Red Planet nor any affiliated or related entities. This podcast is provided for educational purposes only. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Red Planet. This week, we're speaking with historian and journalist Nick Estes about the case of Leonard Peltier, a Native American activist in prison since 1977, and how it relates to the fight for indigenous rights around the world. Plus, Sarah Jane Baker has been acquitted, bold prison abolition policies are proposed for New Zealand, and RICO charges have been filed against Cop City protesters. But first, we never forget... So yeah, it was like this wild thing where the one American kid in the entire school and (laughs) 9-11 just became how Osama bin Laden had personally victimized him, like, you know, personally. It was like this thing where it was like, you know, it it, it was all about him. And I think like even like teachers and stuff were very indulgent in this because they probably wouldn't have any idea how to handle it. And also he was just like... (laughs) saying extremely out-of-pocket stuff about like how you know like his uncle had been on one of the planes and mm-hmm. tried to take on the attackers and like you know like how he was like a hero and all this kind of stuff like that and it was just like you know like there was a, there was a bunch of people that knew this kid and we were kind of like hmm like mm-hmm. i don't know like the family and everything that he had told us about in the past was very different to the, you know, like the, the family of war hero veterans uh, that are, you know, taking on terrorists and mm-hmm. stuff now. Um, but yeah, yeah, like I was thinking it was like probably not a thing in inside of America, but Mm-mm. for the American diaspora, like kids <laughs> that are out in schools outside of, you know, America, like kids that are in schools in, I mean, guess like other imperial core countries, like, you know, New Zealand and the UK and stuff, it seems like there's a vibe to the one American kid at your school. <laughs> that <laughs> is so like, great. I love that so much. It's a weird thing. I feel like every time I've been to school, uh, school and there was like an American kid, it's like, oh yeah, he's like extremely American, you know? <laughs> welcome to red planet everybody and uh i love that tim i love that story it's uh it's everything that americans are it's uh especially when they're not in their country of origin uh or not origin as as Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to be talking about on the show later on today (laughs) um but we will be starting the show in the traditional way of asking our hosts tim in particular, what was the most base thing that you did this week? Well, um, so I am on the verge of mo- moving house. Um, I've got to move like next week. Only just found out that I had got the house like this week, the start of this week. So it's been like very like mm. all go. So yeah, I've been like downsizing everything that I own. Um, <clears throat> like years, this is years and years and years worth of like collecting books things yeah video games all kinds of stuff just like whatever so um have been have been purging like so much stuff um but one thing that has been really interesting is just giving things away to people through community pages which is like actually sick as hell 
Nice. So what do you mean by community pages? Oh, like, do you have that over there where it's like uh, on Facebook or whatever? You might have like a ne- some people in your neighborhood will have. Yeah, like neighborhood. Page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's like w- the Wild West. Like it, like just feral most of the time. Or it'll be like a group of like people that'll be like, you know, did anyone see this? You know, mm-hmm. like this car driving slowly through our street that, you know, whatever, like just, just bullshit, you know, whatever. But, um, it's actually, it turns out it's really good for just like getting rid of stuff. My favorite interaction out of all of these so far has been, cause I've gotten rid of heaps of stuff from like, I had like a huge box of like art supplies and things from over the years from various different things that I've tried out. And, you know, like people like get in touch from like, community groups and they're like you know would this be good for kids whatever blah 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 but um anyway one of the best was um i had this huge box of cds that is like just cds that i had built up that collected over my whole life going back to like when i first started buying cds in like the late 90s early 2000s or whatever like all kinds of stuff i put them up and i put up a thing saying this is mostly kind of heavy and alternative stuff or whatever pretty extreme metal kind of like then there's like y2k kind of new metal and like kind of weird goth industrial shit whatever but like you know like all kinds of random other shit as well and i put it up thinking that it would be like this kind of grizzled old like dude in a metallica shirt showing up because he wanted some like cds for his like truck or something like that and um, it was actually like this this young like gothy kind of queer kid who like came down the driveway and was like yeah my best friend just bought a cd player and we're like really looking forward just to like listening to cds and like having sleepovers and stuff and i was like fuck this is so good like actually going to like people that are gonna like experience them you know like they're gonna have like a little thing and they're gonna flick through and look at the artwork and be like what does this sound like whatever so um that was really cool also quite i guess like liberating on my end where it's like man this is like so much shit i've been carrying around Mm -hmm. let go of your earthly possessions tim get rid of it no right yeah yeah get rid of it all just gonna own nothing and be happy (laughs) (laughs) what about what about you mule what have you been up to well, um, I've not done too much, uh, quote unquote, uh, I guess, I guess uh, not too much like activism. Um, yeah, some people might call what I've done activism, but it's very, very small and it's very, very silly. Um, but I'm, I think a lot of people know that I'm on a big growing stuff tip at the minute. I have become a soft soil boy. It's my entire personality. Now I'm really proud of all my plants. Um, even though I'm doing indoor planting, I've been mulching and everything. So all like dead leaves that have fallen off my plants, I've been like putting that on the soil, even though I don't think it's necessary for indoor plants, but I want to make sure that they feel like they're as outside as possible. Um, I'm a plant dad. I'm a plant dad. That's really um, cute. Yeah, I, I genuinely love it. I genuinely love it. It has actually, and I'm not, I'm not, I know I'm sort of being a bit jestful here. I'm, I'm having a jape or two. Um, but I, I genuinely, have gotten a lot of fulfillment from it and it's really, really nice. And I do think, um, that it's just great for the soul. So what I actually did, uh, this week was I reminded myself that nature gives to everybody freely without asking for money or, uh, discriminating against any of us. So what I actually did was I, uh, claimed a lavender plant that belongs to me. It belongs to all of us actually. Uh, and I have planted it just in a little homemade, plant part that I made there. Um, yeah. And apparently lavender like really enjoys absolutely garbage soil. 
um if you're watching the by the way if you're if you're on the podcast podcast version you won't be able to see this but i'm showing this off on the the video uh version of this uh show so if you wanted uh an incentive to go over to youtube and check us out on there you should absolutely go and do that but yeah so Lam- lavender apparently really likes like absolutely dog shit soil like not soil with dog shit in it but like just the worst soil like with no nutrients in it really really likes to um just have a struggle like that, that's that's what it's all about it's its whole vibe uh and it was completely true because i got two sprigs of lavender and i put one in like a very heavily watered fresh compost pot and it just fucking curled up and died like instantly overnight um but this one is uh it's doing quite well it's doing it's not doing too bad it's, it's bent over at the top a little bit i don't know what that's about hopefully it doesn't mean it's going to die but it seems like it's sort of staying alive it's pretty green the leaves are out it's uh you know it's vibing so uh, that <laughs> is the most base thing that I did this week. You, that you liberated the plant. I did. I liberated the plant from its awful, awful urban environment and put it into another even more awful urban environment. <laughs> uh, what about our sweet Kara? What is the most base thing you did this week? Thanks for asking, Mule. I'm excited to say that I record a podcast with Conrad Zimmerman, our producer, and Sophie from Mars, our bestie, (gasps) our adorable, adorable bestie, Sophie. Um, We recorded um, uh, a podcast about the Democrats. So it's conspiracy theories about the Democrats. And the name of the podcast hasn't been announced yet. Um, (laughs) Is what I'm coming quick. <laughs> um, however, this is going to be Patreon uh, bonus content for every single Red Planet patron. So no matter what tier you you subscribe to, you'll have access to it. Let me tell you, I had a really, really good time. It was super duper fun. I highly recommend becoming a patron, if only just for the access to these podcasts, because they're going to be great. It was really, really fun. I really enjoyed it. And that's it. That's the most basic thing I did. In incredible thanks our sophie who is not here this week um she went to the amazing uh zad uh to get a bunch of footage for a documentary about the zad which will also be uh something that's coming very very soon um i'm sure there's going to be like multiple versions of it multiple different types of clips and long form short form video um but from everything that she's told us uh and also everything that she's spoke about in the reddit the red planet official discord it sounds like she had an absolutely wonderful amazing time uh i'm really excited to check out all the footage uh and i'm sure it's uh it's going to be really really awesome so uh big up our sophie uh for going over and doing that we also have a based viewer this week uh so nistria got in touch with us and told us that she has been working for a year for a soulless company uh, that services POS systems and ATMs and just maintaining capitalism in general. She got an IT job with the local co-op association. It's union and definitely planning on getting involved with that as soon as she can. Uh, and she's already a member owner now. So now she's a worker owner. Absolutely incredible stuff. Um, it's apparently a product of Western Canada, specifically Saskatchewan's surprisingly socialist history. Uh, and working there is like living in a social democracy, she says. Uh, still capitalist, but not as monstrous. And she hopes to agitate from the inside to try and push co-workers further left. Absolutely yeah. amazing. Nistria. That's great. We love, um, yeah, things like that. You know, like a lot of people, I see, you know, sometimes I see people being like, oh, you know, like, 
it's still, you know, like a capitalist business or something like that when you talk about co-ops and stuff. But I think that like any step towards a more democratic workplace is amazing. And it's kind of like, yeah, obviously we're not living under a, you know, we're, we're still living under the economic system that is capitalism. I do think it's always good for us to reiterate that this isn't actually communism and this isn't actually socialism just for the only reason that there's so many people out there that do try to do like a CIA work of recuperating the fight for like the enemy to try to recuperate things that we do to try to advance our cause is a real thing. But the after we mention that I think we should congratulate people for taking these steps because this is incredible stuff. Like like you yeah. said, living according to your values as best you can, given the oppressive environment you've been thrust into against your will. Yeah. I think it's awesome. It's very base. And I think generally as well, the structure of these businesses is just going to make you a, a happier employee. But uh, yeah, awesome. Great work, Nistria. I hope I hope it works out for you, pushing people further left and uh you know, sounds like things are going good. So, uh, yeah. So if you are a viewer that has had something cool like that happen, or you've done something cool where it's like, you know, been part of a protest action, it's been doing something in the workplace, anything like that. Um, yeah, you can message us on Twitter, Instagram, or t- TikTok, or send us an email. Um, at, to based at redplanetshow.com. If you include your name and pronouns, um, we can include it. We'll shout it out in an episode. If you want to, we can do it anonymously as well. We don't have to name you, but, um, but say, let us know in the message if you do want to go anonymously or not. Otherwise, uh, yeah, cool. All right. Well, uh, so <clears throat> should we get into some news then? Yes. Well, Mule, so our last episode, um, we uh, were talking to a representative of Sarah Jane Baker. Uh, if you all remember, why don't you give us a little update on the situation uh, going on with her? Mion? My pleasure, comrade. Uh, so Sarah Jane Baker has been acquitted on the charge of inciting violence that we were talking about on that show. Uh, so Sarah Jane Baker uh, has been found not guilty by the City of London Magistrate Court on charges of inciting violence during Trans Pride. The charges stemmed from a speech Baker gave at the event in which she said, if you see a turf, punch them in the fucking face. Uh, Red Planet gives no comment to that particular statement, uh, but police initially chose to take no action. Uh, but after pressure from MP Suella Braverman and other transphobes, they arrested uh, Sarah Jane Baker four days later. Uh, genuinely, if you want more information on this particular news story, you can check out our last uh, uh, episode, as Tim said, we spoke in depth to Anita. I forget her surname, but, um, Anita is one of Sarah Jane Baker's, uh, longtime comrades, uh, and her legal, uh, representative. And, um, yeah, it was uh, a very, very in-depth discussion just about the sort of overreach that the home office took in that particular instance. Um, uh, Baker has actually apologized for the statement saying that she did not intend for the speech to result in violence against anyone uh, and that she just wanted to get some of the uh, just wanted to get attention for some of the causes that she believes in. Uh, and of course, um, because she uh, has uh, been imprisoned in the past, she's, she's an ex-convict, uh, her status as a parolee meant that she was actually remanded to a men's prison while awaiting trial this is a trans woman and you know we, we spoke about this at length as i said uh on the 
previous episode and it was just very very obvious that 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 you know uh this was just a huge massive attempt at the government to just be like well let's see if we could get away with just putting trans women in men's prisons and they did it like just for, for no fucking reason there was no there was no actual sort of like um law that she broke uh the sort of like inciting violence thing was sort of like tagged tacked on to the end uh of this this whole scenario so very very just vile behavior uh you know fuck the home office fuck suella braverman um deputy chief magistrate tan ikram expressed doubt but ultimately sided with baker's claim however ba sarah jane baker unfortunately remains in custody pending a parole hearing currently expected in march of next year and i'm going to do the same thing that i did with uh my stream um, which is encourage all of you listening at home uh, or in the chat right now to go to freesarahjanebaker.com. That's Sarah spelled S-A-R-A-H, Jane, J-A-N-E, Baker, B-A-K-E-R. Um, freesarahjanebaker.com. Write Sarah an email. It takes two seconds. If you believe in uh, prison abolition, if you believe in, uh, you know, the human right to, to you know, freedom of speech and, and protest and all that stuff. Uh, it, it's just very, very simple. Uh, sending you love and solidarity. You don't even have to sign your name. You know what I mean? That, that kind of stuff can mean the world to someone who is experiencing the full force of the state uh, by being in prison. So that is the story right there. Uh, love and solidarity to Sarah Jane Baker. Um, but our next story, Kira is going to tell us about some other turf island bollocks. I, sh I sure am, Yule. Uh, so the UK government is being reported to the UN over a strike law. So I'm going to tell you more about that. The Trades Union Congress, a.k.a. the TUC, I guess, Tuck? I don't know. Yep, it's Tuck. Okay, Tuck says it's reporting the, U the UK government to the UN watchdog on workers' rights over a new strikes law. So... Right now, the the UK government is doing some really, really oppressive stuff to workers in order to try to force people to work, despite the fact that they're unionized, despite the fact that they're trying to strike. Um, under the new law, which will apply to England, Scotland, and Wales, the government will require some unionized employees to work during industrial action or face being fired. And on top of that, the union could even be sued by the company for losses. There would also be no automatic protection from from unfair dismissal for an employee who is told to work through a notice but chooses to strike. The government says that the new rules, quote, protect the lives and livelihoods of the general public as well, end quote, as well as access to public services. Um, I love how it's like they say like, oh, yeah, you know, like these people have to suffer to protect like, you know, like the working people, the you know, like the average person, but it's like these workers are those people, like, you know, like, which is something that I think uh, they always, they always try and say that, right? Like, it's like, it's the same with, um you know, in America, like when they were pushing frontline workers, you know, to go back in and stuff like that. It's like, these are the people that are, you know, these are the people that are suffering. These are the people that are at risk. There's no, there's no delineation between like, you know, the people that, you know, the people, even the people that like wish that life could go back to normal and the people that are going to work and stuff. It's like, these are, this is the working class. Mm -hmm. No, no, Tim, there's the general public and then there's 
the other people. Then there's the ungrateful workers. <laughs> yeah, <they're>, yeah, <laughs> the ungrateful workers who are trying to ruin the, the experiences of the general public. These people only exist in 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 the workplace, yeah, and they don't and actually they exist it. in the general public. <laughs> Mm. apparently um if uh, this is this is sarcasm by the way this is a lot of sarcasm of course these people are part of the general public it's ridiculous that we would try to divvy them up and say they are not part of the general public that's suffering or or needs to be like whose whose rights need to be um you know preserved um anyways so uh once implemented the strikes minimum service levels act will apply to a wide range of workers including those in the rail industry and emergency services um, so the tuck said the legislation falls short of international legal standards. They're labeling them anti-strike laws and are saying that they might even be illegal. Um, I'm not really sure where this is going to go. I don't know if any of my, any of my, uh, Red Planet correspondents have any expectations of where this is going to go, given that it's the UN trying to do anything about anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, Especially in the face of like the entire United Kingdom trying to trying to oppress workers. As the resident Brit, honestly, um, uh, I have very little hope in general. Um, so I also have very little hope that this is going to do anything. It's good. Like the, the, the TUC, the trade union Congress has been doing like a lot of, of work mobilizing and organizing trade unions, uh, you know, during the last year of huge strike action, the, 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 the massive wave of strike action that we've seen, not just in the UK, like, you know, uh, all over the world, but particularly the TUC is, is, you know, a UK organization. And, um, you know, they've, they've done lots of really based stuff, um, from, from what I I remember various sort of like stories that we spoke about them on here uh, and also like going to uh, uh, rallies that they've organized that they're, they're pro-trans uh, they're anti-racist you know uh, pro-grt like they're very 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 based um and so i think they're doing everything in their power to be like right you know we gotta we gotta make sure that the the, the workers are protected in the uk we gotta make sure that people just can't like you know suffer because they choose to strike um and um but i think that is good in, in and of itself but i i am very doubtful uh mm -hmm. to see because you know we talk about things that the un has uh been informed of all the time here on red planet like for example the things that israel does to palestinians um and nothing really happens about well, that yeah, so like, you, you know about it, it's like wow you know like israel is like well, the UN are um, uh, pretty guilty of um, of helping engineer a lot of the uh, Palestine-Israel uh, exactly. conflict. Exactly. So it's like, yeah. yeah, you know, like, I think at the end of the day, it's, um, you know, it's like that bigger picture thing where it's like you look at it, okay, like, how is this going to affect, um, you know, like, uh, what are the what are the movements of capital surrounding this? You know, mm -hmm. it's like, and um, I mean, like, this is, you know, what they're trying to do is like disempower any, like the, the ability to strike for, you know, so many workers and stuff like that. And I would unfortunately say that, you know, that obviously aligns with the goals of, of capital or whatever. And um, yeah, I wouldn't expect the UN to come in, too hot on this like i feel like it's going to be like a our hands are tied situation but uh you know we'll see we'll see what's going on i have a actual solution i think i actually I, I i just worked out the math i don't know if anyone this might be a breaking news here at red planet breaking news breaking, breaking news. news segment i think there is a way 
that workers can serve the general public, quote unquote, um, while also not being, you know, outrageously oppressed. Granted, it's capitalism, but not being outrageously oppressed. And it's called giving workers more money. Whoa, yeah. that's yeah. I don't think. Oh, my God. Listen, if this is true, absolutely astonishing. Great work. Thank you. Yeah, Kara, no problem. For this, this, is, this is an official Red Planet breaking news segment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Then more money equal um, more, more good for workers. More it's, good for workers. It's yeah. controversial. But, Listening you know, to workers, actually. Maybe mm-hmm. that would be the solution. We'll get our research team to look into it. <laughs> but uh mule now that i've reported on your your country how about you report on my country i will in this, georgia this is the country that kira owns um no i'm it's, responsible uh, so, for it <laughs> basically uh this this is um uh one of the it's it's quite similar actually i i want to just go out on a limb here and say this is a sort of similar state overreach of power to the sarah jane baker story um lots of people will have probably heard of this but this is about these 61 cop city activists who were hit with rico charges by georgia's republican uh, attorney general so uh, in what is being called a petty revenge indictment quote by many commenters 61 environmentalist activists have been indicted on rico charges by the same grand jury in the state of georgia that just a couple of months ago indicted former president donald trump in fact i just want to correct that i think it was a couple of weeks ago um the activists who have been involved in the Stop Cop City campaign for various amounts of time, differing from individual to individual, were described by Republican State Attorney General Chris Carr as, quote, anarchist terrorists who are, quote, anti-business and, quote, anti-police. However, based those crimes sound, the implications of this indictment are broadly bad news if the state achieves convictions on these charges, as most of the details relate to how the anarchists use mutual aid and solidarity to support and care for each other. These are terms that are actually listed in the charges sheet. So the charges that were brought against them, uh, you know, when when uh, people in the system are reading through it, it describes the actual process of mutual aid, the actual definition of the term solidarity, uh, and that could, of course, uh, mean that if it's successful, the convictions could mean that these phrases are then keywords for identifying enemies of the state and endangering the freedoms of hundreds of thousands of leftist activists from trade unionists to anti-racist activists and beyond. Um, so just a quick, uh, I guess, update, or if you're new to the show, uh, stop, uh, sorry, Cop City is a huge $19 million, I think, I might, might even be more than that, might be $90 million, I, there's a nine in there somewhere. The more they um, dig, the more they find, it's it's even more and more and more than they ever estimate, yeah. so, you know, yeah, it's, 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 it's an abs- point. It's an absurd development, they're destroying a huge swath of, of uh, uh, Atlanta's forest, I think it's literally just called Atlanta Forest, um, which is sort of in the... Um, I want to call it like on the way to the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia, and um, it's in a primarily black neighborhood. Um, it's in a sort of like just in general, like a very deprived neighborhood. And it's a 
basically a practice city where it and and people have called it this they've called it um i heard this on the benjamin p diction show um it was a consolation prize for the cops for the george floyd uprisings you know the activists who were involved in the uprisings got nothing in the way of changing uh racism in america um but what the cops have gotten as a reward for injuring arresting and even killing some protesters uh in in those protests uh is cop city a place where they can learn to do those things a lot better um now there's a lot of different controversies associated with cop city for example the fact that they had a now this this is legitimately true um they had a uh, what do they call it? Like a, a panel of people to discuss and, and, and say whether they want this thing built in, in, in the city. And, um, there was an overwhelming decline of, of people who wanted, people did not want this. Like 70% of the people there said, no, we don't want this being built in our forest. Um, we don't want this being built in, in Atlanta at all. And that was even with a biased, jury like the jury did not not the jury sorry the 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 the, i guess the committee yeah it would have been a committee uh a biased committee the committee did not contain uh any residents of the area where it was going to be built it contained an overwhelming amount of uh people who were involved in law enforcement fire department emt uh workers so it's it's just a very 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 vile obvious like abuse of state power and, and police power and and it's it's an opportunity for police to be trained in more uh, urban combat scenarios where they are literally going to be putting down any kind of dissent. So uh in response to this a call has been put out by devin franklin who is the movement policy council from the southern center for human rights which is a big legal uh i think i think it does like some free legal aid and stuff uh the, the southern center for human rights but for every lawyer in the usa who supports justice and activism to provide legal aid for the indicted activists and Kiana Jones, one of the organizers for Stop Cop City, called it a retaliation, quote, retaliation for anyone who seeks to oppose the government here in Georgia. We couldn't agree more. Solidarity and love to the activists and all of our forest defender comrades in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, but Tim, you have got some awesome news for us uh, from, I think it, uh, you said it was the Maori Party in New, in New Zealand? Yes, yes. Um, the Maori Party, who officially renamed a little while back to Te Pāti Maori, which is just the Maori language version of the Maori Party, um, have just announced uh, a bunch of their new policies. We're coming up to an election here in New Zealand. Um, so everyone's busting out their new policies. And while a lot of the kind of liberal parties are doing, you know, like giving pretty weak shit, like we've had some, some really good stuff from the left this time. Um, the Greens have put out, the Greens and, um, Te Pāti Māori have put out really good tax policies that actually beat the conservative right wing parties for like average you know, the average New Zealander saving money, all this kind of shit, you know, like beating them on the financial shit. And um, which is good because I think that gets a lot of the liberals and like even the more kind of like center conservatives interested. And then um, the Te Pāti Māori have come in really hard, I think, with this new, like with a lot of the, um, they've been building up momentum the last couple of years with um, some really radical policies, which uh, we love to see. So um, in their justice policy, 
Um, they have just announced a plan. Their plan, well, their goal is to abolish prisons in Aotearoa by the year 2040, which is like, you know, shoot for the stars and what is it? No, shoot for the moon. And if you miss, you still land amongst the stars. Amongst the stars, that's right. Yeah. But, you know, and it's like, like the thing is, um, they are, while they have um, become a mainstream party, they're still not like anywhere near like a majority party in parliament. Um, they are every, you know, like they're, they're getting more popular with all the polls and stuff. They're getting more and more popular, but um, they're not in the position to do that by themselves. But the way that our parliament works is MMP. So it's like, if like you get a bunch of votes and um, that determines how many seats in parliament you can have. And so a lot of the time, most of the time, a party, one of the main parties won't get enough to, um, like you have to get over half of them to, you know, be the, the ruling party or whatever. But it's not often that someone gets enough just by themselves. So they have to form these deals with smaller parties. So at the moment, the Labour government is, um, it's like a coalition between the Labour Party, the Greens Party and Te Party Māori. And that together has meant that, um, so Greens and Te Party Māori have been able to put pressure on the Labour government to do things, you know, whatever, because Labour are pretty toothless by themselves. So we're hoping that um, Te Party Māori get enough seats in there to actually, you know, like they're obviously not going to be able to go like, okay, we have like a couple of seats. We want prison abolition, you know, but they can go like, okay, cool. Well, I mean, obviously prison abolition isn't about just closing the prisons tomorrow. It's about creating a society that um, removes the necessity, removes the supposed necessity for prisons, you know, so they can start kind of putting pressure on the government to, um, you know, like tackle some of the social issues and stuff that lead up to it. So, um, yeah. So, uh, the new policy is aimed at challenging the institutional racism that has traumatized and failed Maori communities at every level. That's um, part of their statement. Um, because, yeah, Maori are super overrepresented in prison statistics, which is like commonly a thing with um, colonized and indigenous people. It's, um, you know, it's like uh, over-policed and criminalized communities uh, obviously lead to this. And, you know, we all know that like poverty is also one of the greatest uh, kind of contributing factors to crime and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, um, there was also another awesome thing just recently. They um, said that if they do get into the next government, that they want to end um, state care for Maori children because um there was, there have been scandals over the last couple of years where, um, we had like a child youth and family agency that they rebranded. You know, they gave it a sick new Maori name and all this kind of shit like that. Um, Oranga Tamariki. And then they just kept stealing Maori babies for like no reason. And there was like a huge expose that was like, you know, it was all over the TV and shit. Like they were literally just taking children out of homes for like no reason at all. It was like, Really fucked. And this is like the kind of shit that we know has been happening. And we've talked about it for years and years, you know, it's like, but, um, you know, it takes, it takes a TV expose and for people to see the actually like really pretty gratuitous footage and stuff to realize that like, you know, like 
I think people have this idea in their head that they're like, oh, okay, if a, if a child is being taken, it's from, you know, like a really terrible situation where there's like abuse and all this kind of stuff like that. But the, they were just taking things like, um, like, so we have this practice called like fungi, which is like when if you, it's like adoption within the family, like, you know, you might give like a child to like a brother or a sister who raised it or whatever like that. So that's illegal by the state's laws or whatever. So just for that, like a child could be taken and then you'll never see them again. And they just grow up in state care. And, you know, things like that. It's, there's all kinds of other stuff. So, um, so they're going to, they want to get, they want to get rid of that agency and set up a separate one that's run according to kind of like Maori values and stuff like that. Um, they also want to redistribute state funds to a, um, a separate like Maori justice system based on kind of like traditional um, practices as opposed to, you know, like the kind of, I guess, you know, what you would call like the Pakeha courts, you know, um, which uh, is based kind of more on, uh, I guess, traditional ideas about justice, which um, I don't know if anyone is familiar with a lot of um, transformative justice works. Um, a lot of, I would say, like a lot of Western transformative justice authors have always looked at the Maori model as being um, quite kind of like, you know, like... Um, uh, the community, I would say the community justice kind of model is like, uh, uh, sorry, I'm like having a hard time articulating this, but it's like, like that's, um, a framework that other people have sought to emulate, I would say, is, um, you know, where it's like justice isn't just focused on like, I guess, like punishing and imprisoning people or anything, but it's about redressing harm to the victims and making things right in the community for the victim, but also for the person that did it so that it's like they can actually, they can have a life out of this. They don't just go to jail. They don't get pushed away or whatever like that. It's like, and you know, a life where they, they don't reoffend. They don't, do these things or whatever. And um, so that's that's part of the new justice pro uh, policy. What else we got? Um, there's all kinds of stuff like Maori legal aid services for, you know, obviously like poor people that can't afford it, all this kind of stuff. Um, addiction services. Oh, that was a, a great one. They want to reform, or they want to do um, drug law reform and treat it as a health issue rather than a, cr a criminal issue and um, wipe previous criminal convictions for drug use and and possession, uh, which is great because the um, decriminalizing um, cannabis and stuff has been an issue here. Like that's probably going to be a thing that we hopefully get sometime soon, but there's still Maori in jail that, you know, like have been imprisoned for shit like that. Um, and uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I mean, this is, I, I feel like this is huge. This is the most radical policy that we've seen um, put forward for forever. Um, uh, yeah. Maori are like just incredibly over incarcerated. Um, it, what is it? Um, Maori men, the incarceration rate peaked in 2010 at 2% of the entire population was, you know, like incarcerated, which is like just, you know, like for, uh, for non Maori, it's like 0.28%, which is like wild. Um, 
And yeah, they say um, roughly imprisoned, Māori are roughly imprisoned at about seven times the rate of non-Māori, which is like, yeah, which is huge, especially considering our like pretty small population, not just in New Zealand, uh, but Māori in general. I think there's only like a million Māori in the world, but like, you know, um, and 2% of them in jail, like wild. Um <clears throat> So yeah, uh, that's it. Really looking forward to seeing how this pans out. I'm hoping they get into government. Um, they definitely, the Greens and Te Party Māori are the parties that I personally, like they're the ones that I um, kind of support. Uh, but, you know, and both of them have great policies. Both of them also have policies that I'm not too fond of. But I think based on the stance, like, this is that's 100% like you know because a lot of people always assume that I'm just going to vote for them anyway but I'm I, I'm one of those like annoying people that tries to be as strategic as possible when voting and looks at you know like the electorate and the representatives and how many seats and all that kind of shit but um no but I think this is really uh hit a bit of a home run for me but um anyway uh we've got one more story here I would like to hear from Kira about um, some stuff that's been going on in Hollywood. Yeah, so this is going to be a huge content warning. Um, this is going to deal with sexual assault. So if you don't want to listen to that, um, just, you know, just grab a drink for the next like, you know, go do something for the next three minutes and then come back. Um, so Danny Masterson. Danny Masterson is an actor in Hollywood. You might be familiar with him from uh, that 70s show. He plays Hyde. He uh, has been sentenced in May, in the end of May, May 31st, he was sentenced to, uh, or no, sorry, he was convicted of raping two women, uh, three women he has raped, I'm convinced, but um, one of them, there was a hung hung trial, hung jury, so two out of three he was convicted of um, raping, drugging, and violently, violently raping. Um, so... He was just now sentenced a few days ago, running up to a few days ago, in preparations for sentencing, a veritable who's who of Hollywood stars and other supporting people have come forward to write letters to the judge presiding over his trial, trying to plead with the judge to please don't give him a, a, a long sentence. This is, by the way, knowing that he has been convicted of force of like violently raping at least two women and drugging them prior um knowing this a bunch of people and i on screen right now is the graphic i made earlier today um i, I worked really hard on this graphic everyone <laughs> and because i was so upset about this story i really wanted to make it clear that not just a list of names but the faces of these people would be like seen uh people like mila kunis ashton kutcher um a lot of the Mastersons, so like a lot of his like brother and and brothers and sisters, um, a lot of these people have come forward to write letters to the judge, pleading with the judge to please don't give him a long sentence. And some of the things that they've said is like, um, he's rejected drugs. He's encouraged me to not use drugs. He's he's drug free. And apparently this is supposed to be a really uh, commending thing to say about him, even though he was convicted of drugging multiple women and raping them. Um. All the letters insisted that he's an ethical man. He's friendly. He's jovial. He's a hard worker. And all the letters also said that he has a daughter. Please think of his daughter. If you put him in prison, his daughter won't have a father. Won't, don't you, won't you please think of the children? 
Um, from Gio, I'm going to just read Giovanni Rubinsky's uh, uh, part of his letter because it was it was just instru- it's just a demonstration of all these letters. Uh, Giovanni Rubinsky, who's a by the way a Hollywood actor, I've always known Danny to be an ethical, honest person. And by the way, again, I cannot reiterate this is after knowing he has forcibly raped multiple women after drugging them convicted by the courts. I've always known Danny to be an ethical, honest person who lived to w- live with the highest standards and work and family. I've always known Danny to be a central figure in my peer group because of his integrity, his stance against drugs, his abhorrence of violence, and most of all, the respect he demonstrates towards women and children. He is a devoted husband and a doting father who sacrifices for his family. His wife and daughter depend on him. I know Danny has been convicted of two counts of forcible rape. I only ask that you consider his daughter in his sentencing. He is a good father and he is important for her to her and her upbringing. This is a demonstration of the letters that you're seeing the people on screen. Uh, This is basically their letters over and over and over again. They're talking about their personal experiences with Danny Masterson and how he's actually a really good guy, despite the fact that he actually has been, confirmed by the courts as being a serial rapist. Um, the situation is even further complicated by the presence of the Church of Scientology, uh, for whom uh, Danny Masterson and others are members of. If you're unfamiliar, Church of Scientology is a cult that has many high-profile figures, such as Danny Masterson, uh, formerly Laura Preppen, um, also uh, Tom Cruise, John Travolta. There's so many. It's wild. If you look up a list, it's wild. And it, look it's at, a lot. Like, yeah, even like the people putting these letters in and shit like that. It's like, oh yeah, okay, cool. There's a big, you know, it's, and also cannot understate just like the general influence that they have in Hollywood and LA. Like even with the LAPD, they work with like, they hire off duty LAPD officers to do security for them. And there's like, there's a lot of back and forth with the police unions and stuff. It's very entrenched. There. Yeah. The cops are very much um, in, entwined in this. And in fact, in the letter, in the there, I found a sub stack which showed um, all the letters that they could get their hands on that were submitted to the judge to plead for, on behalf of Danny Masterson. And one of them was from a retired Lieutenant of the NYPD. Um, so yeah, the situation is further complicated by the search of Scientology, as Tim is Tim has been alluding to. And for instance, Laura Preppen, um, actress from that 70s show, also um the the Orange is the New Black. Uh she's also used her status as a Scientologist, as a high profile Scientologist to help sell, silence one of the victims under threat of excommunicating this victim from uh the victim's family and uh the church of scientology because there's there's a whole thing there's a whole thing where i'm not going to get into it's way too long of a spiel to describe to explain the church of scientology it's just a very very um exploitative and uh coercive cult so i just wanted to close and say that this story for me is 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 a big deal uh not only because it's obviously obscene and horrific um but as both a, a victim of, of rape and also as a survivor of the, chi- uh, the Church of Scientology as a child, um, it's pretty meaningful. Rape culture and cults, whether it be like Scientology, QAnon, what have you, are, are persistent societal illnesses. Um, and this trial and all of Masterson's supporters is just a small cross-section of that issue. Thanks, Kara. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. Uh, just real quick, we're going to mention our comrades of the show. Uh, Palestine uh, yes. Action, 
Uh, we got some big wins for our friends at Palestine Action in the last couple of weeks. Activist Jasmine and Lola, who were charged with obstruction of the highway following September 2022 action, in which they locked themselves within vehicles blocking the entrances of UAV Engines Limited, have been found not guilty. The ruling was based on the principle of proportionality, with the judge finding that the actions were proportionate to the crimes against humanity the pair were attempting to stop. Uh, also, after three months of delays, sentencing has been handed down on four Palestine action activists involved in an attempt to shut down production at the Elbit Shenstone factory, although the, though the judge refused to hear justification defenses during trial, which might have led to their acquittal by jury, none of the four have been given prison time. Finally, last week, members of Palestine Action stormed the offices of IO Associates in Manchester. IO Associates is a recruiting company who one day prior announced an expansion of defense recruitment in the city for Elbit Systems. During the action, in which the protesters carried flags and a banner reading IO Associates recruiting for Elbit murderers, the company's director assaulted several people, including breaking the phone of a 14-year-old daughter of a journalist. Stay classy. Uh, Manchester Palestine Action released a statement on the action saying Manchester won't accept a recruitment agency for Israel's criminal weapons, system, uh, weapons firm Elbit. Um, people here are disgusted. IO Associates have expanded into the city. How dare they when Israel has been exposed as an apartheid state again and again. Israel continues to massacre Palestinians, steal more land, and imprison people for defending their homes from ethnic cleansing. We won't stop until all Elbit's recruiters are kicked out of the city and Elbit is forced out of Britain for good. Based. And uh, I'm just conscious that our guest is waiting in the wings for uh, to come on. So uh, real quick, just want to remind everyone, we have a Patreon. Please, please, please support us. We want to remind everyone that Red Planet is made possible. Yes, only by the, the direct support of our viewers and listeners. Uh, we would like to expand by hiring an editor to help us produce more shareable clips and create all new content. So that's that. Please head over to patreon.com forward slash red underscore planet and... Support was there. All right, cool. So, um, yeah, thanks for all of that, Neil. We've got a guest today. Uh, we've got uh, Nick W. Estes coming to join us uh, to talk about a couple of things. We'll get into it in a second. So um, Nick's a prominent Indigenous activist from the Lower Brule uh, Sioux Nation. He's had uh, his work in activism and uh like his writing has had a huge impact on the movement, not just for indigenous rights in America, but across the world. He's been a super prominent voice in uh, the fight for yeah, both the protection of the planet and indigenous rights and, you know, like the intersection there. So, um, yeah, he's coming to join us today to have a little chat about the ongoing case with uh, Leonard Peltier and how that, the, the bigger picture, I guess, of that, not just how it's his personal um, imprisonment, but what led to it and, uh, yeah, and how it's kind of informed by the greater struggle for these Indigenous rights, environmentalism, and, um, yeah, I would say definitely goes into the land back, land reform kind of uh, stuff too. But, uh, yeah, thanks. I think Nick is with us now. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, cool. Thanks for joining us. Um, so, yeah, like I was saying in the intro, uh, you, uh, we invite you to come on to talk about a couple of things like, um, you know, like land back and indigenous resistance. And, um, I think you brought up that you thought it might be, um, a good idea to talk about, uh, Leonard Peltier because it's, uh, it's coming up on his birthday, right? 
yeah, this Tuesday, September 12th, will be his 79th birthday, I believe, or 78th. Wow. I can't. Yes. Yes, so, 79. I should know the exact year, but it's it's one of those two. <laughs> uh, when was he imprisoned in? Right? It was like... So we say he's entering his 48th year of imprisonment, which means he's been in prison for 47 years. But we count the incarceration from the time that he was actually, uh, you know, detained uh, uh, and then extradited to the United States. So he's this is his 48th year of incarceration. Yeah. So the longest standing um, native prisoner in America, right? Yeah. So he's 79. Just looked it up. Thanks, Google. But he is uh, the longest serving political prisoner, indigenous political prisoner, I should say. Um, and he's one of, you know, a handful that are still dozens that are still uh, imprisoned from the 19, you know, 60s, 1970s freedom movements, you know, from the Black Panthers, uh, the Black Freedom Movement, as well as indigenous uh, and, you know, Chicano and Latin American um, movements as well. Yeah. And the United States, by the way, claims it has no political prisoners. I was always sort of familiar with his case um just because it is quite similar to some cases we've had over here with um maori activists like um tamaiti and um and others like rangi kimura who were imprisoned for political reasons you know like basically stitched up by the state saying that you know like these people are running some kind of like terrorist training camp in the you know deep in the bush and we've got to stomp that out and you know then in eventually having to say like oh shit we don't actually have anything on these people we just you know kind of got a little jumpy or whatever um so it was very similar so i knew i knew of this case from that but i didn't know the depths of it because i think that's the thing you know like you kind of just get used to the idea that like you just expect that the police will come and fuck with you and they might you know like if you're especially if it's like a you know you're an environmental activist or some shit like that you you get used to a certain level of like, oh yeah, someone you know might get arrested for something and it could be over, it could be over nothing. So I just, I always, I knew that there was like a gunfight and that, um, you know, like he shot in like self-defense and all that kind of stuff. And I just figured it was as simple as that, but um, just, yeah. In preparation for you coming on, I went through and I watched, um, I watched Warrior, The Life of Leonard Peltier. I watched, um, I watched a couple other, I watched a bunch of news segments and I just, it just totally opened up my mind to like how big this thing really is and how it's, um, it's, and why it was such a big deal. Maybe it's to do with the way that the, that American, the way the American media wanted to present it, that it was just a case of a one off, a man that was in this situation. And it was just like maybe one bad day as opposed to like the entire like context leading up to it, like the social political aspects, the, um, the ongoing, harassment of that particular community previous like literal like like massacres that had happened there um do you have a way to sum it up for people that are watching like how would you explain leonard's case um to i guess to the layman to people that aren't familiar or anything um would, yeah how would you describe it sure so this case actually begins before leonard peltier ever steps foot and Pine Ridge uh, begins before, you know, the uh, armed takeover of the Wounded Knee Massacre site in 1973, which this year is the 50th anniversary of that takeover. And it begins, you know, long, long, you know, when the United States first started, you know, laying claim to uh, 
what is known as Lakota country and begins to colonize it and settle it and begins to break uh, the Ocheti Shakoe or the Lakota Dakota people into smaller and smaller, you know, uh, groups of people, begins to divide them, creates a land base, you know, a reservation uh, to confine them. And then, you know, I think a lot of people saw the the Indian Wars of the 19th century as sort of the end of this kind of armed conflict between um, the, you know, the Lakota nation specifically in the United States government. And this culminates in the massacre at Woudinie of, uh, you know, by the 7th Cavalry, it's George Armstrong Custer's former regiment uh, surrounds and waylays a uh, group of starving, horseless, mostly unarmed, you know, Lakota ghost dancers um, who were on their way to surrender uh, in, in Pine Ridge. They weren't even from Pine Ridge. You know, a lot of them weren't from Pine Ridge. Most of them weren't. And they were thus subsequently massacred, some say in an act of revenge. Uh, others, you know, would say that it was the Senate, the, the sort of final chapter in the, the closing of the frontier, so to speak. Um, so Native history is sort of confined to the 19th century and sort of ends, right? And we see the rise of power movements in the post-war moment. This is a response to, uh, in you know, the specific region of, of South Dakota, it's a response to efforts to terminate and to relocate uh, Native people off reservations. Globally, you see, you know, burgeoning anti-imperialist decolonization, uh, anti-war movement. Uh, people using the language of national liberation to really speak about their rights beyond sort of this kind of domestic framing that we often are are taught. Uh, I don't know how it's taught in, in Aotearoa, but here in the United States, it's taught as something like we have the civil rights movement is only kind of concerned with domestic, you know, uh, domestic kind of issues. and Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of the same, like what you were saying, like um, there's like we have like, like the land wars and everything like that. Then it's kind of like that kind of like the end of history kind of thing where it's like, okay, well that's, you know, like this stuff is like, this is resolved. And from here we're like one nation and, you know, like, uh, you know, we learn about like Nelson Mandela and we learn about like, you know, uh, Martin Luther King and, you know, like maybe sometimes they'll even teach you about Malcolm X, but they won't tell you too much about what he's saying, you know? And it's like, yeah, Nelson Mandela is a perfect, example for this era because he's he's kind of um championed as this you know nonviolent resistor but the reason why he was in prison is because he refused to renounce violence as a legitimate form of self-defense people forget that you know he was waging they were waging an anti-apartheid struggle at that time and there's this uh, moralizing that happens i think you know uh hindsight 2020 when we look back at the past and look at somebody like Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and he's sort of the stand in for what we know as the civil rights movement, but also on the eve of his assassination, he was one of the most unpopular people in the United States because he was speaking out against the war in Vietnam. And that was a turning point, right? We see it. We see the turning point with the black power movement, uh, both uh, domestically and, you know, as it kind of uh, permeated itself throughout uh, various kind of, you know, other countries in the world. Um, and then you also have a, a burgeoning student movement. And it's interesting because the American Indian movement actually comes at the tail end of a lot of that, uh, that kind of uprising. 
by the time wounded knee happens, the anti-war movement is, you know, kind of on the, on the decline. And this is because this isn't necessarily because like, I think a lot of folks look at the internal kind of, uh, contradictions within these movements and sort of look at the failure of leadership and strategy and appeal and really forget the, you know, you know, it wasn't until after these movements were sort of on the decline that we begin to see the levels of, uh, state infiltration and repression, uh, almost from the very beginning, right? Um, when the Black Panthers, you know, begin to sort of organize these community self-defense, uh, you know, chapters it, it draws a lot of attention from the fbi and the fbi you know is under j edgar hoover at this time and running what is essentially you know a political uh, uh repression and policing of anyone who's kind of against the status quo and it's it's important to also remember that there's sort of two elements that are combined within the police like within the policing structure and the imperialist structure of the united states and it's one is anti-communism and the other is settler colonialism. And, and a lot of people kind of can understand the first one, but they can't really understand the second one and how the sort of racial logics of the United States uh, and even its kind of imperialist push, you know, to other countries, everything that it had done to indigenous people, it then begins to export to the rest of the world. It begins to overthrow indigenous governments. I mean, we recognize, you know, the overthrow of Hawaii. That was a, uh, that was a you know John Foster, who's the first uh, Secretary of State to overthrow a foreign government in the United States. That's the granddaddy of John Foster Dulles, who becomes the head of the CIA, and then be in he's you know the mastermind in the post World War uh, II moment of all these you know CIA uh, coups and plots, specifically kind of rooting out communist or uh, you know anything that could be labeled as communist uh, governments throughout the world. So this is a, this is a, you know, a two, like we often, like there is a, there's a critical dialectic between the domestic and foreign policy of the United States that it almost, in some ways, when it comes to indigenous people, it doesn't really quite, you know, it's never quite one or the other. It's kind of both at the same time. And so the American Indian movement really begins, you know, begins here in Minneapolis um, in 1968. Uh, the founders were people who were part of the anti-war movement. Many of them were former, formerly incarcerated uh, Native people that came from the street. They weren't they weren't intellectuals, right? Uh, but they immediately aligned themselves with Black Power, uh, the Black Power movement. Um, and by you know by the 1970s, they're a national organization through a series of occupations of Bureau of Indian Affairs um, buildings throughout the country. Uh, and by the time you know, uh, in 1972, there's kind of this, you know, unstoppable force where they're, they're kind of parading around the country in these caravans, um, you know, going from one kind of reservation, one city to the next, uh, really challenging the status quo and, and kind of introducing a kind of more militant form of struggle, one that requires self-defense. I was struck as well by um, what uh, Leonard talks about in Warrior about um, building up the economic kind of base of these different groups, how they would just go and they would, you know, they would sit up somewhere like they sit up at Pine Ridge and they were like, we need some money in these communities. So we need, a, you know, we they started building up, even like just like the big community gardens and all these kind yeah. of things like that. And it was like, they were just trying to, get some money coming in, get people self-sufficient because uh, everyone was like super poor there. You know, they were saying they would get like little like parcels every now and then or like vouchers from the government and stuff. But in general, there was like 
no money, there was no um, opportunities or anything like that. So it was like very similar, you know, to um, like how like the Black Panthers and I mean, so many other groups set up where it's like they start with like education, they set up with like some kind of like basic infrastructure. Now, obviously, you know, like in a place like Pine Ridge where the government, they're not going to be handing out business grants or anything like that. So it comes down to the people and it's like, it always seems like that's when it becomes a problem, right? You know, when it's like this kind of like self-sufficiency when things start going right and stuff. But um, one thing that I also um, was struck by the similarities between like domestic and abroad was, um, I guess, like the um, extractive capitalist kind of element where, um, you know, like all around like uh, Pine Ridge and the areas around, there's like the land is like full of, valuable resources and this is like even going all the way back to custer finding out about like the you know literally that there's like gold in the hills and all this kind of stuff and i think a lot of people often talk about just like the i guess like the cultural thing of you know like the american government or whatever like fighting back against like the native way of life or like trying to push them out like a lot of times people talk about it in like these like purely kind of like romantic terms when it's like there are very like material reasons why mm. um why they do these things and it's the same with you know like i guess like imperialism abroad you know there's like resources out there and all this kind of stuff and it's like so many parallels there it kind of brings home the whole thing that it really is one struggle and i i wonder if this is like um you know like i mean it, it it's it is kind of like conspiratorial to be like is this why you never learn too much in schools about like the real stories of the these like um i guess like imperialist aggressions by the states and all this kind of shit because then you look at it and you go like wow okay so that's what they did to the natives at pine ridge as well you know like the more kind of like layers of the onion that i felt was peeled back like learning about this case the more i saw the parallels and like all over the world not just here in Aotearoa, but also, you know, like in the way that, um, you know, like, like the way that New Zealand operates in the Pacific with other smaller Pacific nations and all these kind of things like that. It's like the only difference is that, um, instead of, you know, like in the States, these are like separate, uh, native nations on the same landmass in the Pacific. It's just like everyone's on a separate island, but it's all very, like, pretty similar in the way that, um, that various governments interact with them. And, um, yeah, it definitely brings home the whole kind of like the one struggle kind of aspect. And it makes it, um, it's really, um, yeah, it's really interesting to see it from that side. You know, another aspect, of, like, sort of a parallel is uh, I think what, initially draws the attention of the FBI is when the American Indian movement begins occupying what they believe were abandoned bases, um, but some of them were not abandoned military bases. Um, and this, it becomes a sort of a, a, an extra layer of surveillance, not just by the FBI, but also military intelligence. And this is what led to the confrontation at Wounded Knee. And it became an occupation simply because the people who took over wounded he couldn't leave. Um, and the U.S. military played an active role in that. And this is something that hasn't, uh, that isn't often talked about. Um, and it's, it was actually looking and reading the memoirs of one of the commanders, military commanders. His name was Colonel, uh, uh Volney Warner is that he's like one of the big successes of the military operation at Wounded Knee was that nobody remembers that we were, there's a military operation at Wounded Knee. 
Um, and he, you know, he even in his first assessment of the, of the scene when he arrives, he's like, yeah, this poses no uh, security threat to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, the state of South Dakota and the and national security in general. But nonetheless, much like Vietnam, you know, why is the United States invading Vietnam, a country that is mostly peasant, you know, uh, based rural economy, there's no natural resources that it, that it needs to go in and exploit. The main thrust in the same, uh, you know, uh, action report that this colonel was writing at the time, he said, because if we don't do something at Wounded Knee, it could spread to other reservations. There could be other Wounded Knees. So this economic component comes in much later um at first it's a political and then you know a political struggle and becomes sort of this idea of containment the american indian movement was building institutions as you say like here in minneapolis one of the first how they how they sort of embedded themselves in the community and got the support of the community was through jobs programs uh education uh you know cultural sort of uh, programming uh, prison support legal support housing um they helped uh, you know create a housing urban housing unit um and i and i often you know often think uh in some ways um when we focus just on like the events of oglala we forget as you know as you pointed out all the institutions that were being built you know simultaneous uh to the struggle and people tend to focus on the braids and shades and the men with guns versus understanding like even the day that the fbi showed up uh, at the Jumping Bull property, uh, you know, at the end of June in 1975, the majority of people there were actually under the age of 20. They were mostly kids. And so most people don't realize that. And so the F, even the popular narratives, like it was like, you know, men with guns versus men with guns. In reality, it was like a couple, a handful of adults with a lot of children and families present. And this, over kind of like compensation of force from the other end and that that begs the question it's like why you know why was why was the the federal response so quick in that moment in time and so in some ways it's it was kind of a you know it was a setup in a lot of ways in in the sense that it was there's an expectation for a confrontation internal fbi memos prove this after wounded knee the FBI was felt like it was embarrassed that it didn't have the same kind of matching firepower to, or that it could over, you know, it could overcompensate in terms of firepower when it was engaging specifically with the American Indian movement. But you have to remember the FBI was just an investigative unit, right? And even, even when we talk about the assassinations of, you know, the Black, of Black Panthers like Fred Hampton, the FBI was actively involved. But they didn't pull the trigger. They got police to do that, right? So these are most mostly like you know suit and tie kind of guys, but they're becoming increasingly militarized in their response to uh, the American Indian movement. And you also have increasing economic pressure to sort of open up uh, the West, you know, so to speak, for uh, resource extraction. They begin to look at you know those explore exploratory mining for uranium. Uh, the gold industry is still booming at that time. They're trying to, you know, they're trying to open coal and gas, uh, in not just the Black Hills, but in the West in general. In the, in the Western part of the United States, that's where you have the largest, uh, land-based Indian reservations. And in many, and in some cases, the largest kind of concentration of native people within rural environments. 
So of course you're going to want to contain, you know, a militant or armed, uh, you know, with, this is the framing of the FBI. You're going to want to contain the militant and armed, uh, you know, outbreak of, you know, native groups in these regions in that one area because you don't want it. Again, you don't want it to spread to other reservations. And this is this is exact. I mean, you can read you can read the reports. Like the military was still surveilling uh, the the American Indian movement at this time. They were looking at you know in Fort Defiance down in Navajo country because there's massive uranium oil and gas fields. Uh, there was a group called the Coalition for Navajo Liberation that led an armed ac- occupation of, of an oil field. So yeah, again, they were worried about the spread of this sort of militant, you know, what they're framing as a militant movement, because in tandem with um, the the American Indian movement, like we often frame the American Indian movement as anti-tribal government. And it's not necessarily the case, because even within the Lakota tribes, AIM was supported by some tribal councils. In 1974, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe hosted the American Indian Movement and formed the International Indian Treaty Council. In places like the Navajo Nation, they took this idea of like a strident kind of like third world nationalism uh, to to like they took it very seriously and began nationalizing for all you know for for all like that's all you could really call call it is nationalizing the oil and gas reserves on. Uh, you know, on their, on their territory. And there's, you know, there's some divisions there, but nonetheless, it was moving, you know, the broad consensus, the, the American Indian movement was sort of the vanguard of that sovereignty movement. And so it was beginning to look more and more like a threat and threatening, you know, the kind of the, the status quo in terms of like gaining access to resources, which is true. Cause you can look at that today and, and Standing Rock, the, the movement at Standing Rock in 2016, the you know there were so many after standing rock there was like actually a global like an international sort of impact in law enforcement the british columbia actually formed what's called the cirg it's the community industry response group it was formed the rcmp their kind of version of the fbi it's like a federal police force that's tasked only with surveilling and policing native-led movements in british columbia in canada and then in, in the United States, you have trainings, you know, you have these uh, local sheriffs who are policing the, the Standing Rock camps, um, going to all over the, you know, all over the West, training local sheriff's departments and what to expect in a rural kind of like situation where native, you know, a, a reservation is going to like, you know, lead some kind of uprising. It's a big business because native led movements in Canada and the United States currently challenge a quarter of carbon and greenhouse gas emissions from both countries, like in in the in the in the specific uh, projects, the expansion projects in terms of like oil and gas pipelines to the extractive projects. That's a lot of money. This is a you know this isn't just like we're not just messing around. You know, like this is serious serious business when it comes to these fossil fuel you know gangsters who are literally destroying the planet. Like. They have a like we're hitting them hard in the checkbook, and you can kind of see that same the initial kind of pressure. I would say today, and this is you know something you know to, I'll go back to the, the Leonard Peltier case, but today the the security state is far more expansive, far more well funded, you know, far more uh, you know numerous uh, and repressive 
in some ways than it was in the, in the past. It's definitely bigger, right? And this is for a variety of reasons, the green scare, the war on terror, uh, the so-called war on terror. But even today, you have the Lawani or the, the Lawani, uh, force protectors in Atlanta, Georgia, who are trying to stop Cop City. There's over 60 of them that have been charged with RICO charges. Yeah, we were a, talking about it just earlier, actually. Yeah, it's a it's a federal statute for like mafia. Yeah, yeah. And these people are just like raising money. Like they're like they're like the people that like I, I interact with are always like the nicest people, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. like white liberals who are just like, you know, raising money and we need them, you know, God bless them, but that's who they're targeting. And guess what the date of that charge of that criminal activity is? It's May 25th, 2020, the day that the Minneapolis Police Department murdered George Floyd because they're arguing that there's a campaign by people who are opposing the expansion of the police department. They're leading a campaign to overthrow the United States government. That's what that attorney general in Georgia is arguing, and they're trying to push that. It seems like a common thread throughout what you're saying, and especially thank you for pointing the date out. I did not put that together. That's chilling is that there's the economic side of things. Sure. There is like even the power side of things, which power, if you can quantify it, but then there's this like ineffable, just like feelings like pride where, how dare you this, how this, uh, this audacity. We talked about earlier about it being like, um, you know, cop city is supposed to be like this little kind of like, yeah, I guess like consolation prize for them because of the George Floyd stuff, you know, like this was supposed to be like, they're um, like, okay, well, you guys, you put up with that. So we're going to give you this or whatever. And then um, the fact that there's been so much pushback on it is like a personal insult. Um, going back to the Pine Ridge stuff through the, um, the documents that were leaked, there was, um, I think I remember there was a point they pointed out in Warrior where the FBI changed it from, a counterintelligence operation to a counterinsurgency operation where it's like, so at first they were just like keeping an eye on these people, you know, these groups like the American Indian movement and, you know, just seeing what was happening, seeing what was developing there. And then there's a point where they decided like, these are, these are insurgents, you know, like, and so basically like, you know, these, this is like a terrorist group or something like that. But then when you look at it, the, it was the American government that was, performing acts of terrorism against this small community you know but um yeah i found it like really interesting when they they kind of flipped the switch uh when they said you know this is like a counterinsurgency thing is yeah it was when they they started taking measures to be self-sufficient they started even just like started teaching people how to shoot and do all those things which i mean in that kind of community it's normal for people to have all kinds of guns that's totally within their rights as you know people that live in america to own and operate firearms all that kind of stuff but um it's a similar thing in new zealand with the um with uh tamaiti and stuff uh when they got arrested it was because they started they started training with guns and it's like, well, they, they're allowed to have guns as farmers that have, you know, all over the country that have the same guns that, you know, like are doing the exact same things, going to the forests and shooting bottles and things like that. Like that's totally normal. And like, even like a celebrated activity for the right kind of people. But um, yeah, as soon as it's, uh, as soon as it's the wrong kind of people, it's like, oh, this is insurgent activity. What could just be like, harmless, harmless fun 
on a farm or whatever like that if um yeah you know that that kind of stuff gets added to a case file if you're not the right kind of person or whatever it's um yeah it's pretty it's pretty wild i mean at the end of the day laws are a justification for state violence it's not actually a guideline to like how consistently the law is applied it's just when the state wants to inflict violence on mm-hmm. on the people it, it it oppresses it then goes here do you see this this is the reason it's not because we're oppressive it's because we all agreed upon this law apparently yeah, yeah i think that's a really important clarification to make because we do often joke here that the law is the arbiter of all morality uh, <laughs> of course that is not the case um yeah that's not what the, the views of, of red planet <laughs> yeah and i i think um it was it was a interesting case because like you said it was like the suit and tie guys from the fbi were the ones that rolled up and um they literally parked their car parked their cars quite a distance off and were taking pot shots at people with um with revolvers you know and it's like which is like you know deranged behavior and then acted like like there's interviews with some of these the cops and some of the FBI oh some of the FBI guys talking about it and they're um they're talking about how they were like oh you know like this is just a a couple of guys and they were facing um overwhelming odds by all these Pine Ridge guys with their rifles and all this kind of stuff and but there was no reason the cops could well I mean the FBI couldn't just leave they were never at under any kind of threat where it was like they needed to stay there with their guns and do anything, protect something, do whatever. Like there was no justification for them to stay there. And further up the road as well, they had more guys. Uh, some of the footage that I've seen shows there was the guys that were like right there, um, you know, taking shots or whatever. And then there was a whole bunch more back up at the road. They, you know, had cars parked up with more guns and everything like that. Whereas, the natives at Pine Ridge had nowhere to go. They were, you know, they were under siege there. Like actual, you know, like this is a kind of stuff, you know, people look at like Waco or they took at, um, you know, like any kind of Yellowstone ranch kind of standoff bullshit or whatever like that. And they, they craft all these like kind of, I guess, like elaborate romantic stories about it and stuff. But then it's like, this is like the the standoff to end all standoffs, you know, like a people that are like literally like backed in by the literal FBI and the cops and everything like that. And it's like, they have nowhere to go, but the cops want to argue that they're the threat. You know, they're the ones that are causing a danger to the FBI, to the cops and all this kind of stuff like that, which is just like an absurd claim. It's wild that any of that stuff even got through the court in the first place but then i mean we say that now but then uh looking at these court documents it's wild there's like a juror that admitted to being prejudiced against natives there was like you know there was all kinds of stuff there was like um a bunch of a bunch of the other guys got um their charges dropped or they got acquitted and then they changed to a new judge who was like notorious for like being anti-native and you know like all this like wild stuff where it's like that's all grounds for it to be for the the case to be thrown out from to be retrialed and all this kind of stuff. It's wild. They're asking for clemency as well, which isn't it, it. Clemency isn't innocence. Clemency isn't like saying, you know, like he was wrongly in prison. Clemency is saying he's been in prison for long enough and it's time to, you know, let him 
get out and like live the rest of his life or whatever. But there's like grounds for like completely like, you know, like he should have a right to a fair trial and all these things. And it's not like, um, it's not unreasonable, unreasonable or out of line with other rulings, other cases for him to, for his team to demand that. Like, how do you, how do you think the case is going at the moment? Like, what, what do you think is like the current state of things? Because, um, last I heard, the last story I saw him on the news is that, um, this was about like a year ago or something. I think he had, he actually got COVID in, in jail, right? Um, uh, yeah, like what's the state of things at the moment? Is he doing okay? Uh, yeah, so, um, this new sort of push, uh, I guess this new event that's happening actually on Tuesday in Washington, DC is a really good sign that there's a lot of momentum around his case, various kind of legal avenues being pursued. I think one part of, yeah, the clemency application is incredibly important, but the other part of it is like looking at how even by so the normative standards of justice or like even the normative standards of the Bureau of prisons, which keeps uh, people in prison, um, he should have been paroled, like, or even like granted sort of like, uh, release. Um, uh, you know, like there's been a, a member of the Black Liberation Army who was released, Matulu, uh, cause he's just so old, but it's, and that's why, what makes a, a political kind of, in his case, political and like qualifies it as a political, uh, you know, him as a political prisoner and even the United Nations, you know, uh, group on, working group on, uh, torture and arbitrary detention has ruled that his case is a form of arbitrary detention because even within the COVID standards, you know, he's eligible for release given his pre-existing conditions that never came through his age, his declining health, his aneurysm, all of those things should qualify him to at least be released. And, you know, he can be under supervised, you know, supervised release and put into, in like an old folks home or retirement community in his home, in his homeland. And, and in fact, in, in a turtle mountain where he's actually from the tribe has already created a uh you know like a a return home for him like to provide him housing and things like that so there's already this is all set in place and it really boils down to the fbi chris ray who i don't even think was alive he wasn't even i don't know if he was alive at the time of the shooting maybe he was like eight years old i don't know um wrote a letter an internal letter to you know, retired uh, FBI agents and their families saying, you know, and it, it was a, it was a sort of his letter to the parole board saying, you know, this, the FBI family will not stand for the release of Leonard Peltier. And so yeah, this is a the FBI family. It's like an insult to them, right? Like, well, it's like, it's also like, that's a mafia mentality, like the family. It's like a, it's a personal you know, FBI family vendetta against Leonard Peltier. And this is, it just, it, in one hand, it's like, absolutely reprehensible uh but on the other hand it actually reveals the attitude of this of this of this institution um you know chris ray is a trump appointee who was kept you know kept in power by by president biden uh but it also just shows it also just demonstrates that like when january 6 happened they like killed people they like killed cops yeah and, but everybody went home yeah, 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 yeah. They milled around in like hotel lobbies and went to Starbucks and you know, and I, I have my own criticism of the way that like, you know, these charges are coming down and everything. Mm. But it's like 
it it took such a long time, like percolated on it. You know, those are these massive yeah. manhunts. I'm not even going after the leaders. I mean, yeah, like Trump is like facing some like election stuff, but n- none of the people in his inner circle is like facing anything in terms of like yeah. trying to overthrow the government. But yet they're slapping re- they're slapping RICO charges on like kids in and you know Georgia, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the RICO charges against Trump, I actually don't have anything to do with the the January sixth thing. It's totally something else, which is like fascinating. So I think like. The just to kind of give a bring it back to the the Peltier case, it's like on one hand, all the arguments that have been made for his release have been made for the last four decades. Like this is ridiculous, you know, in terms of like the FBI, you know, back in the nineties marched on Washington, like one of the first times I think they've ever marched, or the only time they've ever marched to protest uh, um, President Clinton's like intimation that he may or may he's considering the case right yeah yeah i think it was like there was like a it was like a radio interview where he's like yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna take a little look-see at that like democracy now yeah yeah and, yeah because phil clinton like was famous for giving clemency to heaps of people you know like there was like celebrities like friends of his and all this kind of stuff and then you know and it's like i mean there's been plenty of Plenty of um, presidents have given clemency for ridiculous stuff. But then just look at like how, um, I mean, this gets to the the kind of corrupt nature of the FBI, but look at like Whitey Bulger. Whitey Bulger was in the same prison complex as Leonard Peltier. Whitey Bulger, there have been films made about this guy. He was an FBI informant yeah. and, an, and probably an asset mm. and killed dozens and dozens of people, murdered them. And this was known by the FBI. And so what kind of people, you know, pay a known murderer and keep them out of prison and, you know, and, and free for most of their lives? Like this is, you know, it goes back to that FBI family, like mentality. This is America's like federal gangster police force, right? They, they have no remorse. Like even F, uh, FBI founder J. Edgar Hoover, like there's this whole like kind of, attempt to rewrite and you know rehabilitate the fbi like it's strange how the democrats are now like the the kind of like beacons of the fbi and law enforcement and whatnot but he was he was his role in the fbi like they they often said oh he's gonna go after the mafia and blah 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 and organized crime the first people he targeted were like immigrants who were who were communists you know like that was his like his main obsession throughout his entire life was being america's police force political police force that's like a huge thing right whenever in new zealand we got this a lot where they were like after the christchurch shooting they were like we need special investigative powers of all these things to um to clamp down on this shit we need to get rid of these you know like white supremacists and all this kind of stuff and like the only time that i have heard of that they're using like these new kind of like ways to troll through data and metadata of stuff online they're literally like only using it on like environmental activists and you know shit like that it's like they create these new powers and then use them on communists (laughs) and yeah and going back to january 6th there was this internal email that was leaked from the fbi that talked about there was a question about whether or not there was an active duty FBI agent who was participating as a as a oh. civilian yeah, in, yeah. in the January 6th. And they couldn't confirm or deny that it was happening, nor would they confirm or deny uh, active undercover FBI agents. But what was leaked was actually saying that 
regardless of anything like any of these accusations, if they're true or not, doesn't matter because the 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 fact of the matter is that a good section of the FBI actually agrees with the January six. Like that was just like (laughs) that should have been that should have been grounds for like you know like uh, we're gonna end this like this you know we're gonna end we're gonna break apart the FBI you know we're gonna like put it under oversight or something like that but no it's like now it's just a, a political police force you know for by Bi- the Biden administration against its perceived enemies which still include us you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> one um one thing that I did think was quite interesting was I was watching an interview with Kevin Sharp who is mm-hmm. um Peltier's attorney at the moment and he was like pretty kind and he's quite an interesting figure himself he was um so he was um a federal judge um in tennessee and um and so he was like yeah nominated by obama to the federal bench um but he actually resigned because of the mandatory minimum sentences that they brought out and he was like i don't agree with this you know like i like yeah i absolutely can't enforce this so he resigned from being a judge and went back to being an attorney and um was has been doing like a lot of work around like clemency since then but the the one that um was quite famous was when kim kardashian got on and she was arguing for clemency for a bunch of people but um particularly chris young the um the young black dude that uh, Kim Kardashian got clemency for that was Kevin Sharp that was mm-hmm. um so Leonard Peltier's attorney he was working with her on that but um and for him he was saying he was like the reason that this was successful wasn't because of me it was because of Kim Kardashian and that she's famous and got this attention and all this kind of stuff which also was very similar to um back in the seventies and eighties a lot of the um activists that supported leonard were going traveling around the world going to even to like you know to the soviet union where they were getting like they were getting reported on outside of america more than they were inside of america which is wild you know people are saying that there was like french french newspapers that were having regular updates on him you know like obviously like all over um like soviet uh you know, because like the, the the official American position is that they have no political prisoners, whereas at the time they were like those Soviets, they got a million right. political prisoners or whatever. So it was kind of this way of Soviet media, like being able to very um, confidently say, look, America has political prisoners. You know, I think it's important to point out that it's not like, uh, you know, Soviet citizens are just like brainwashed into this thing. And I think that's how it gets like kind of portrayed, but it's there's 17 and a half million people who like, and it's not like everyone was like from Moscow or St. Peter, whatever, or Leningrad. It was like people who were in the, like the far reaches in the Eastern part of the, the countries that were writing these letters because they, you know, they felt compelled by like, you know, not just like Leonard Peltier's case, but the way that like na- native people were treated by the United States. And it's also worth pointing out that even like in the Eastern Bloc, there were a lot of like hobby. I mean, for better or worse, there were a lot of hobbyist groups that were participating, you know, and they, 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 they became kind of the locus of a lot of like political support for the, uh, for like the indigenous movement as it was going to the United Nations. But also, um, you know, at that time, it's like, I think this is the, the kind of conceit of settler colonial governments, like, is that we're supposed to be aligned with the people who have genocided us and we're not allowed to either make friends or choose, you know, like, we don't want to make, like, like, why are we being dragged into, uh, you know, these kind of, like, great power wars? And, 
And I think I was talking to a Kanaka Maui friend of mine um, for a show that's premiering tomorrow on the Maui fires. And she says, you know, like, we never, like, Kanaka Maui people aren't, like, united in saying China's our enemy. Like, why should we have to shoot? Like, why should we have to align ourselves with American empire when it's, like, literally colonizing our lands? It doesn't make any sense. And I think a lot, that's what, that's what actually turns a lot of people off to indigenous politics is that like, if we're true about our like international relations, you know, and our power, we have to be non-aligned with this kind of imperialist system. And it, it, like, we don't like, nobody's advocating for war. Nobody's like saying, Oh, we're going to support everything this country does or that country does. But the reality is, is that if you're not going to support like the liberation of people at home, then we have every right to go and to petition other nations. Imagine Palestinians were just tasked with the the goal of trying to convince everyday Israeli settlers that they're humans. That's an absurd notion. And anything short of that is somehow like like some sort of like ethical, moral, like like bad. <laughs> like yeah. how dare you seek out? That is a perfect analogy, by the way. That's amazing. It's the same as like with like Vietnam and any number of you know these kind of like imperialist wars when there was. Um... It's also what happened in Rhodesia. It's like yeah, 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 yeah. Hello, like why would the why would the people who are literally like disenfranchised go to the white supremacist settler government that literally has disenfranchised them? You know, and like, and like ask, you know, like, what are we supposed to do? Like hug the murder out of you? You know, like what, like, what are you supposed to do in that situation? What was Nelson Mandela supposed to do when he was in prison? Like just beg for forgiveness, cry on the shoulder of the man who stole your land. Like what is like, that's the most absurd form of politics. Even settlers don't do that. Like, like. <laughs> over here there have been like these pushes for maori to get involved and like there have been you know like deliberate like you know re- army recruitment efforts targeting maori and pacifica communities being like this is you know this is the way that you get a seat at the table basically like this is a way that you become like just as good as them or whatever and there's o- obviously always um been like um movements of conscientious objectors and you know they've always become political prisoners like you know in vietnam even going all the way back to world war one and two there was um like huge amounts there was like entire tribes that objected and were like you know like imprisoned there was like i mean uh, a lot of people don't know that that was really a thing um in aotearoa where um particularly um waikato tainui were mm-hmm. Uh, mass imprisoned for not going to war and a lot of them in chains built you know like uh some cities down south like dunedin and stuff like a lot of like the streets and infrastructure were built by like you know what like no one wants to call slaves like political prisoners maori um and that's you know like that's in within like my like yeah like my grandfather's generation it's like there's a you know people were alive like it's like this is uh the recent history and then you know and then vietnam comes around and they're like hey guys want to go again it's like there's a lot of maori poetry from particularly around the vietnam era about you know these guys like going off over there and then like meeting or seeing you know vietnamese people meeting them and being like damn like I've got more in common with this guy 
than I've got with this other guy in the uniform next to me, you know, like my relation to everything to from the land to my relation to this empire and everything like that. Why am I fighting this guy? And a lot of them got like really radicalized people that, you know, were uninvolved in politics or anything. A lot of them came back from Vietnam and were like, you know, radical, radical Maori separatists after that, you know? So, um, yeah, I think it's, um, it is interesting how these, um, yeah, like these parallels that we were like talking about earlier keep popping up. But um, yeah, so we should actually um, talk a little bit more maybe about uh, Leonard's case. So um, yeah, so this Tuesday, um, they're trying to get uh, clemency from President Biden. Biden, this, I mean, this is like, you know, like, how many how many presidents have been <laughs> petitioned for clemency yeah. at this point? But um, I think like you know it's like with every with every year, I think it is kind of getting more important now because he's an he's an old guy, and you know it's even and in in prison, it's kind of um, you know life expectancy isn't isn't very high for someone locked up, especially someone that has like you know, pre-existing conditions and his COVID and stuff like that. So I think it's kind of more, um, you know, there's like a little bit more pressure. Yeah, I'm really pessimistic and skeptical of the Democratic Party uh, just because this, there was the same kind of push under Obama. And actually, um, Leonard Peltier's son, Waha, died in the hotel room next to me when we were lobbying for his freedom in 2016 after Standing Rock, like it was on the national radar, like, so we've done all this before. And so um, they're so cruel to him that they would, you know, let his children die petitioning for his own freedom. Like, I, I just, I have no respect for them. I, I just be honest with you. I, I have no respect for them because they've had 48 years, 47 years to shred a sliver of humanity. Um, and that's all we're asking is this a sliver of humanity. We're not, you can go back to being, you know, a corrupt politician. I don't care, but um, I mean, I do care, but you know, I'm just trying to be <laughs> rhetorical here. Um, so I don't, I don't put my faith in the system. But what I will say is, there's a lot of groundswell support for this case. It's the grassroots people we see. You know, Kevin Sharp is great. You know, I, I know him personally. He's he's a really, you know, I, I believe he's a sincere dude. Um, it's not a big thing to step down from the federal bench. You know, most people like that's not something you do, you know. So I, I'm I am moved by his moral conviction, but it's really the grassroots people, you know, that I having gone to the memorials, having seen this, you know, work over time, that's where the true kind of spirit and and if there is if he is released, if he is, you know, gets his freedom, it's the victory of those people who've kept it alive for you know, 47, 48 years. It's not the people who decided one day that they're under some kind of political pressure to do this, you know, system. It's like you have, you have every minute of your life to choose, to choose humanity. You have every minute, every second of your life to choose humanity. Uh, and when you deny it, like, like that's, that's a thing, you know, but when you accept it or when you live it and you embrace it and you, you work for the collective good, that should be recognized and celebrated first and foremost not those who have repressed it, you know, both in themselves and in others. And I always bring that up because we were here, we had a rally here at um, uh, Cedar Park where the Little Earth um, neighborhood is. And 
there's just so many young people. Actually, for the first time in this, and actually for the first time I've ever seen uh, in in this working this campaign for the last decade, there were more young people than there were older people, and that to me is amazing. You know, and it, it it's a it's a qualitative shift, um, and because it, it's it's just like people are so aware of you know what's happening with Standing Rock and them going after this generation of water protectors. People just like have have enough, like because there is no alternative. Like we're literally seeing the future destroyed before our eyes, and the inability and the refusal to create comprehensive, you know, climate policy. Like even just like of a milk toast liberal kind, like that are in the Paris agreements. Like we're falling short of all of that, and so I think young people are just like fed up. There's like, and to me, that is powerful that they're creating a movement again you know not again there always has been there but around this particular issue and so that's where i'm hopeful and i haven't seen that before and so we have a different momentum um and i think that's going to be i think i hope that's going to be the the change the shift that's necessary to to push us you know to, to completion one of the biggest things we say on red planet is that when we have really bad news um, the hope that you could take from that is that it will just radicalize more people. And as you said, like you've seen that already happening. And how do you feel about like that sort of, um, in terms of bolstering the land back movement as a whole? I think that's kind of like a, they're both, uh, I think, uh, what do you call it? Like there's a technical term where it's like they mutually constitutive, I think is what yes. people say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, in in terms of like they've always kind of been the same right like it like the the red power movement you know especially as it came to lakota country um began with lakota grandmothers decided to occupy mount rushmore um and it wasn't to like necessarily take back mount rushmore at that time even though it became that later on but it was because the u.s military had taken uh land from the pine ridge indian reservation and turned it into a bombing range and they wanted that land back and then it was like, yeah, and actually the Black Hills too, you know, where Mount Rushmore is, this this shrine of white supremacy. And that was what led, that was in 1970. And that's what led, you know, to the, the American Indian movement coming into that region. So it was all tied together. And then in, I think we often forget, we often think, I think wrongly, that the American Indian movement just kind of like vanished from the face of the earth, you know, after the shootout at Oglala. But like, you know, on the other side of the reservation, there was like a functioning survival school. There's community projects going on that all continued. That evolved into women of all red nations, you know, really taking up the leadership roles, especially when a lot of the men were put into prison. But also to say that, like, the FBI and the media only really cared about women's leadership or excuse me, men, men's leadership. They didn't see women as leaders. Uh, and I was talking to Madonna Thunderhawk and she says, you know, the American Indian movement is a movement of families. And it is, it's true. Like it goes down to that Teoshbai system, the system of the family, um, not in this kind of like heteronormative, whatever, you know, Western liberal sense of the nuclear family. It's like, it means that providing for all the needs, like everyone went to all the American Indian movement occupations. It wasn't like just dudes in their thirties showing up, it was like everyone, grandmas, grandpas, aunts, uncles, children, grandchildren, they all showed up. 
because that's how they roll. That's that's what made the American Indian movement kind of different from these other kind of political movements. So when you're talking about like land back in the 1980s, these same families, they didn't disappear. They didn't like, you know, they didn't just like crumble under the state repression. I think it's a popular narrative. Like, oh, after FBI came in, they just kind of like threw in the towel. And it's like, no, you just weren't paying attention to the, the work that the women continued doing and these families continued doing. They led a coalition of uh, native and non-native uh, environmentalists to stop uranium mining in the Black Hills and to return the Black Hills back to the Lakota Nation. And you had like labor, uh, you had uh, labor unions who were involved in this, who were like adopting treaties, uh, the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty within their their uh their um their labor constitutions to say like this is actually protecting uh labor rights because it has environment inbuilt environmental protections so therefore it's like a workers struggle and also like we have like native people on our unions you know like so it was like a really it was like a really amazing moment and it, it showed like how um expansive i guess the environmental movement could be an anti-colonial right and and it won they won they stopped uranium mining, right? And that's huge. And that's in the 1980s. And the land back movement just like didn't again throw in the towel and stop. It's like this is a we understand this as a generational movement. And so I think in in this in the sense of like Peltier, he just is a he's somebody he they want to keep that movement in prison, right? They want to imprison it and criminalize it. And then they create all these kind of rumors about about him and about the movement that that are simply untrue like that it was like this misogynistic like male-led movement then how do you explain you know the, the the continuance of survival schools that were pretty much run just by native women how do you explain the continuance of the housing programs the legal aid programs uh how do you explain you know this black kills alliance that brought together diverse kind of sectors of society to actually stop some of the biggest uh, and most notorious like polluters in the world. Like, how do you explain that? It doesn't, it doesn't add up. And in fact, I think when we look back and we say like, oh, well, you know, the FBI won and like the aim just kind of like it's confined to the dustbin of history. We're kind of adopting this kind of like misogynistic and patriarchal like worldview. Um, and, and also like the, it also ignores how F the FBI attempted to use families and women as weapons they threatened to take the children away from people or they threatened the children who were involved at the shootout and separation of their families or they turned women into you know informants by threatening to take away their children and exploiting them like this is all proven through like just peltier's case or they end up being involved in some way or covering up the murder of all these people so there's like you know by by the time like Peltier is going to trial, there's, you know, well over 50 unsolved murders and murders and beating and countless other rapes and beatings on Pine Ridge. It's like a low level, dirty war. And the FBI is like the main law enforcement is supposed to track all those things. Those are considered major crimes um, on Indian reservations. And that goes to the authority of the FBI, but they weren't there to do that. There's an overabundance of them on the reservation. Like, 30 plus uh, more than there ever had been historically but why is it that there's you know more murders more rapes more beatings more violence 
Like it doesn't make, it doesn't add up. And it's because it's, they weren't there to stop those things. They were there to actually prevent us in some ways. I don't think maybe they consciously knew this. I don't think they were ideologically aligned like so much in terms of like, we're going to stop the land back movement, but that was essentially their function. Right. Yeah. Um, there was, um, there was a FBI guy that was interviewed. I think it was in Warrior. I, I watched a couple of documentaries about it. And, um, he said that, and he says this like really like just candidly to the camera that he thought of himself as a crusader and that he was kind of like fighting this crusade of like all that was good and right in the American way. And he's like, and I suppose that attitude made it like permissible for me to do things that I probably wouldn't do to other people or, you know, basically saying that he, like he had this like kind of us and them attitude where he was like this noble crusade and everyone else was just standing in the way of, you know, peace and justice or whatever like that. So that he, he did terrible things to enforce this and he knows that he did it. And it's like, it's fucking wild to watch this guy. This is like a documentary from the early nineties. And he's just like, saying these things just admitting that he was basically like this holy american race warrior basically yeah did you hear the the republican guy as well like from wisconsin or whatever in that warrior documentary and he was talking about like the assimilation like the forced assimilation of natives like just brazenly being like, oh, no, 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 we need to get them off the reservations and and get them into society. Otherwise, they'll stay on the reservations with the bad guys and get worse and worse. It's just, like, so, so vile. I mean, obviously, you know, like, Republicans are going to be very open about their racism. <laughs> yeah, 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 I mean, yeah. But it, it's just, like, so obviously and blatantly, and they don't give a fuck, like, uh, yeah, just absolutely vile. Yeah. It's almost like the, like, American, like, uh colonialism is like a cult like i don't i don't use that i know that sounds like like ha 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 but like honestly the whole like manifest destiny ideology and stuff is very like you know very deranged and and cult-like and you know like definitely has religious kind of um aspects to it i would say but um yeah but it's 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 wild to see how you know and like you know, like the the people that were going in and like policing these communities from the outside were not like thinking like, oh, hey, this is, you know, like this is a community of people. And, you know, like the idea that, um, you know, like this idea of like the police or like, you know, like the FBI or whatever, like being separate from the community as opposed to, you know, part of it is like, yeah, I mean, I think like that's like a, like that's just a really terrible thing about police mentality in any way. But um, yeah, I think it's like, you know, normally they're thinking that way about, you know, like a, a, a neighborhood that they don't come from or whatever like that, or like a part of town that they're policing, but they don't live there. But when you take like the, I guess like the kind of, um, you know, like the ideological kind of considerations of it being like, you know, like a native reservation and then these people being settlers. I think it's just like really kind of um turns the heat up a lot on the um on the what is it? The um I don't know, the the racism, the racism dial or something. <laughs> you know, like turns it up. Turning up the racism dial. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. It's, it's it's it shouldn't be a surprise because like this is what, like uh, four years after COINTELPRO has been exposed, you know, like this is happening during the church commission. Uh, in fact, 
the American Indian movement was supposed to be sort of part of the investigation, like uh, the FBI's surveillance of the American Indian movement. And after like several days after uh, the shootout in Oglala, like the, uh, the church commission decides not to just because it's, it's still considered an ongoing investigation. So we don't even actually know, like we don't, we don't know the extent, you know, that this, that there's this, this level of surveillance, you know, but, you know, one thing that's worth pointing out is that, in Standing Rock, the informant, the FBI informant, was actually the nephew of one of the former BIA officers who was tasked with policing the American Indian movement. And he slept with and had an intimate relationship with uh, Red Fawn Fallis, who was actually the daughter of an FBI or of an American Indian movement member who was also under surveillance by the FBI. So this is like generational you know, stuff. This isn't like, again, it goes back to the FBI family vendetta thing. It's like, this is like this, the FBI is still using and abusing native women, right? 100%. And so it's now tasked, thanks to daddy Trump with investigating these unsolved murder, missing indigenous women cases. And they created the MMIP murder, missing indigenous persons unit through the Bureau of Indian affairs and federal law enforcement. But yet it is actually helped perpetuate that violence against native women and has actively ignored investigating a lot of these murders and deaths but now is tasked and funded to do that right and and in pine ridge the fbi the 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 oglala sioux tribe the council actually tried to sue the fbi but couldn't because we're in a colonial relationship with the united states it could only sue the bia so it sued the BIA for like this, you know, this lack of enforcement of, you know, like investigating these unsolved murders and things like that. So the irony is like these aren't things that are like confined to some, some like remote regions of history or geographies in the United States. They have deep implications in the continued like colonial relationship of uh, native people in this country with the federal government and so this actually plays out in like how land back how land back is supposed to work too and so it's it's a it's a it's a really complicated framework but i will say this i think i believe and maybe i'm a you know overly optimistic i'm a pessimistic about a lot of things you know i'm a crotchety old leftist i'm getting that way <laughs> but but um i'm i'm optimistic and i'm always optimistic that given the truth because we're, you know, we live in a heavily, I don't mean even say propagandized and not even just misinformed, but under educated uh, and, you know, lied to kind of population that given the facts of, of these cases and not just Leonard Peltier, but others, like given just the information, I think it, to average people, they would say, wow, our, you know, this is a travesty. This is a crime. Like, and that's really like what at the end of the day, I think, you know, not just Leonard, I don't want to speak on behalf of Leonard Peltier, but having been involved in this campaign for a decade, it's something that like we tr- we strive to do just to give people the basic facts. Here's the primary documents. You can read for yourself what the FBI has said. Make up your own mind, but just know that this is, you know, this is part of an ongoing history. It didn't end in 19, you know, once he was convicted in the in the late 70s didn't end with that you know it still continues today and so i think just providing that information i think anyone would be upset that like 
you know, not only do native people not have autonomy and control of their own destinies, but you as a, you know, the, the American population who's supposed to be, whose interests are supposed to be looked after by these institutions also don't have autonomy and, you know, control of your own destinies because it's, it's, you know, I think that's the, the real kind of crux of this. And, and this is where I think, um, we, there are alliances and have been alliances with other groups, not just, you know, I'm not, when I say average, I'm, I'm not saying like the average, like white American, like cool, but like I'm speaking of other groups who've experienced oppression and, you know, like even just if you are white and you are poor, you know, like there, there's, there's some common ground here. And I think that's the biggest fear is that, you know, these institutions, what they, per, you know, what they, they tell people they actually do isn't what they actually do. And they're protecting a class of people versus, I mean, cause that's, I mean, that's the theory of the state, right? Whether it's a colonial state or not a colonial state, the theory of the state is that police military, they protect a certain class interest, right? And that's, that's really what's at, at stake here is that everyone has, has to benefit the majority of this, of this of people in this country and around the world have to benefit by telling the truth. Right. And, and again, going back, to just being human and like having that common humanity. And if that is such a threat, like the, the, the democratization of the economy, the democratization of land use, you know, because we understand historically indigenous people, like we, we, there's a history of chattel slavery in this country. People like black people have been dispossessed of land ownership. Like we have to address those things, but we're not going to have a con- honest conversation if we're still like, lying to ourselves and perpetuating lies that somehow people who are fighting for equal redistribution of things are the enemy like that's like who who's who in the right mind would trust a rich person who's accumulated like wealth on the backs of so many other people so like it that's i think really at the end of the day that's the so-called threat right the indian problem as we understand it in the 21st century because when we look at the water protector the water protector movement it's not like native people out there like claiming like we have the like we monopolize the relationship to water it's like no like anybody try not drinking water for once or like try drinking dirty water for once like it doesn't matter what color your skin is or who you are like we all need water that's a universal aspiration but we understand that there are certain people in this country and throughout the world who have a disproportionate like access to clean water and, and their lives are often threatened because their livelihoods are often threatened because their water and access to those very things we need to live are sacrificed for profit. So that is a common human, like that's a universal, like it's in the, you know, let's do away with this postmodern bullshit and like actually listen to what water protectors and indigenous people are having, ha- like are saying. They're taught, they're speaking to everybody. This, you know, they're non-indigenous water protectors for better or worse. You know, we had, we had the burning man people too, but, (laughs) but you get what I'm saying. It's like, it's like being a water protector as I understood it and was taught was like grounded in indigenous values. Yes. But also it wasn't a, a, uh, a indigenous exclusive, like political identity or cultural or whatever you want to call it, social identity. It was an act, right? To, to protect something for the benefit of everyone. And to me, that's like, that's, that could be a threat because it's, it's, 
encouraging like it's there's it's not a political party it's not like a like an organized political i mean it will kind of is but anybody could be a water protector you know anyone could subscribe to those values and so we have to like you know the the, the view of those in power is to criminalize to mock it to degrade it to imprison it right to to like get you know your local priests who are raising money you know your local religious group that is raising money and charge and slap rico charges on them right that's that's where we're at like yeah yeah we're, yeah. we're beyond the pale now <laughs> when you would explain to any normal person like it's yeah it's so extreme you know and it's like i feel like it's always like the activists and stuff are framed as being the extremists and having the extreme views and stuff. And it's just like, no, like this is the least extreme thing in the, you know, to, to think that like everyone should have access to water. Everyone should have access to food and education. Like these are not extreme positions whatsoever presented to any reasonable person. Like what objections could you have to those? Right. Like, also, um, with regards to what you're saying about how this isn't like putting away with like the postmodern stuff, like you said, <laughs> um, and just focusing on the fact that like these are just people that are like, hey, other people, we need water to drink, right? Like, yeah. let's all care about this. It, it makes me think like there's no person who's like, I'm an ally to people that need water. I'm, I, <laughs> yeah. I do my ally. There's no allyship <laughs> like that. It's like, Somehow, we're all I need don't water. need water. Yeah, yeah, On behalf of those who really need water, water. Yeah, yeah. you know, none of that shit. <laughs> there's, um, I think there's always, <laughs> yeah, there's always like, um, this thing that I personally have bumped into a couple times and it comes from critics and allies as well. Um, when talking about like indigenous movements, particularly with regards to like, land and natural resources and stuff there's this thing where even like well-meaning allies will be like no they need the water or the land because you know and they'll like they'll retreat to these kind of like really kind of new agey kind of metaphysical arguments and stuff but i feel like all of the all of the groups that i have personally been involved with or you know communicated with it's like yeah okay cool like in kind of like Maori tradition, there is like a different spiritual relationship with land and water, all those kind of things like that. But like the primary argument has always been material where it's like people need land, they need water, they need all these things just to survive and to thrive. And it's like the commodification of land while kind of depriving one group in particular of it is like probably one of the biggest factors that we have that causes kind of like a Maori poverty in New Zealand, you know, like this kind of historic deprivation at the same time is like commodifying every kind of corner, every, every chunk of land in New Zealand for like, you know, creating like the dairy industry, creating the forestry industry and all this kind of stuff like that. These industries that built New Zealand as opposed to, you know, like Aotearoa or whatever. The metaphysical stuff is just like not, um, like it's, it's almost like kind of like, yeah, it's, it's important to a lot of people or whatever, but it's like, it's, it's really neither here nor there. When you really get down to the brass tacks, the main thing is just like securing the land, occupying the land or these things like that. And it doesn't matter like where you're coming from, what you believe or, you know, what you, yeah, any of that kind of stuff like that. It's just like, 
just, you know, you can get involved. Like you said, like anyone can be a water protector. If you support it, just go support it. You don't need to call up your one Maori friend and be like, hey, do you think it's okay if I go to this thing? Like, just go. Like, if you support it, just go. Just be about it. Well, I think there's this, like, this idea of attrition within settler kind of mentality, I guess, Western mentality, where it's like somehow it's like a one-to-one. Con- oh, is this to be like some kind of one-to-one conversion? But I also, I, I also always take umbrage with the idea that somehow, like, indigenous spirituality is is somehow like a abhorrent when a lot of western traditions base their like law their common law off of like uh, like blatantly christian like values and belief systems like like there's like the whole like idea of like the cartesian view view of nature like so all that stuff is already underlying even if you are an atheist then if you are an atheist, then don't prescribe to any like Western legal system because it has its <laughs> origins. You know, like, th- like that's not, like, that's an absurd, that's actually an absurd proposition. I would never tell anybody to do that, but why is it there? Why is there's always this kind of like double standard when it comes to us? And it's because it's an innate or sort of a, a knee jerk, um, anti indigenous or mm-hmm. like, notion of savagery right like somehow, yeah yeah like, absolutely like oh they're not gonna make me eat someone are they yeah. <laughs> like relax we're not catholic <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, also, it also assumes that there's somehow like not a um uh like a like a like not just a spiritual basis but i mean just like there was not like a basis of law like in or that some of these like indigenous societies were like lawless you know and, like that's that's also it's it's an absurd notion and uh, i think especially coming from the left and like from a socialist position, it actually makes more sense to like build on what's already there. Like, it, like you know, you have a whole tradition of like you know Meriatagi, uh, who was a Peruvian socialist who, who saw indigenous societies as a sort of root of of an American socialism. Uh, and in fact, if you go to other like countries, you look at their socialist movement. I always bring this up because it's hilarious. I went to um, Brazil with um some of my white american friends comrades they're really great friends of mine but there was this kind of like a call by uh a lot of the brazilian like communists to like and, and left uh, organizations to do like singing and dancing like because that's what they that's how they like roll there's like this whole cultural aspect of it the mst the landless workers movement is tied to the catholic church so there like there's a deep kind of like foundation of a spiritual tradition within the left and in, in especially in a place like brazil um and they were they they didn't they were like unable to like relate in that way and if you i mean if you go to a, a meeting and like a leftist meeting in the united states it's like one of the most sterile it can be sterile not always but <laughs> yeah. it can be sterile and then there's this weird like oh well we don't want to do this indigenous stuff like we don't understand but it, well, what people don't realize and i think Somebody mentioned this earlier about how, like, yeah, the the FBI takes, there's like a pride, there's like a sense, of, like there's a psychological aspect to it. Well, actually, like revolutionary movements and movements in general also need that too. There's always this intangible element. That's like the role of culture, right? When when Amilcar Cabral was talking about return to the source, he, you know, it was a, it was a socio-political uh, and economic kind of argument that he was making that like, colonized people have been knocked off of their rightful path towards development according to their own needs and values but at the same time the culture that you know if you believe it in a marxian sense like 
there's base and superstructure. It's kind of, it's kind of a, a simple way of saying it, but like the base is, you know, the economic structure, which is for native people, indigenous people in this, in, in this context would be non-capitalist. And out of it arises culture, our language, our spirituality, our belief systems, how we organize, you know, our family structures and things like that, kinship. That is all organized from an economic base or is reflective of an economic base. They may have destroyed our non-capitalist way of living, but they haven't destroyed our culture. And so why wouldn't you use that tool if it's if it arises from a non-capitalist origin? Why wouldn't you use that tool to your advantage? Because it's the remnant of a non-capitalist. I don't I wouldn't say it's anti-capitalist, but it's a remnant of a non-capitalist kind of like a, a society. And you can use that to organize maybe towards a higher conscious around anti-capitalism and possibly, you know, socialism. But I think this is, you know, when you look at like even Bolivia and the movement towards socialism and plurinationalism, it there's a psychological kind of element to the destruction of the Wipala. Like it, it it's not just the the burning of a flag, you know, it's the burning of a religious, spiritual, you know, symbol. That means something. It represents like a psychological kind of like the masses of, you know, the, the psychology of the masses in terms of the, for maybe a brief moment of time, felt a level, a level of equality or a sense of equality with their former colonial masters, right? And having that overthrown through a coup, you know, had a psychological effect, but it was also the way they mobilized to create or to implement a, a, an experiment within a state system, you know, arguably not without its own faults, but nonetheless, like moving towards something, right? And I think that's what's important about it. Like, I don't want to have a soulless movement. I don't like, that's not what inspires people. That's why you need art. That's why you need music. That's why you need spirituality, I would argue. What do you, Give me a scientific explanation of love. You're going to just tell me it's chemicals? Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> love exists. I know it exists because I feel it. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is a perfect time to jump into questions. We have a ton. Um, oh, boy. So... Don't feel, Nick, don't feel like you have to give uh, essay-length answers to all of these. You could just say yes or no or you can't. <laughs> But yeah, uh, luckily the first one that we have isn't actually a question. It's just from one of our chatters. Uh, Criterion X says, not so much a question, but I wanted to say thank you to Nick for changing my life for the better. Seeing him speak on my campus years ago changed me, mm. and his work pushed me to keep fighting for a better world. Right on. That's really yeah, awesome. Um, but next we have an actual question uh, from Catgirl Steph. She says, this is basically the homework, but are there orgs or causes that we as a largely online slash international audience can help with? Well, I'd obviously say if you can uh, like support our work at the Red Nation, we have Red, uh, a, a media arm called Red Media. Um, and if you're not a Patreon subscriber, please become one. It's like $2 a month. Um, it actually goes a long way. We're doing a, a freedom to read program with um, pe people who are incarcerated, specifically native people who are incarcerated to get them books that they need, but also like to get uh, native authored books in the hands of children. And it's not like all like super radical political stuff. It's just like, it's stuff that, you know, again, going back to that cultural thing, we believe this is a broad front kind of issue. So I would say first and foremost, support what we're doing. But I, I also would just tell you, 
wherever you are in the world, there is somebody who's struggling. There is groups that are struggling. And, um, you know, it's sometimes we connect through this, these mediums, which are really important, but also uh, it's also important to like do that kind of like in-person kind of, you know, struggle sessions, even if it's just a reading group, reading groups often, you know, they could, they could evolve into a political movement, but I would always just recommend people, you know, in their own neighborhoods and their own, you know, watch a movie together, discuss it, you know, like do it with your own family, you know, start with your family, start with your friends, start with your coworker. Like you can, you could, there's always a space for it. And Nick, just to confirm, is that um, patreon.com forward slash red media PR? Yes. Cool. We've got one here from uh, Peanut Butter Princess who is asking, are there other indigenous people or activists who are imprisoned under similar conditions? There are. Um, I was given a name, but I'm not, I'm not comfortable releasing it right now just because they're like detained and like it's, it's a strange legal situation, but it's actually, I've been working with, um, the, this group called the tactical media team. And we've been trying to actually create, um, a list of indigenous political prisoners that we can have people write to and support. Um, that's not complete yet it's something that we're actually working on right now because we were like we were talking about this we were meeting and like you know this Leonard Peltier caravan is going and we were like hey we should you know like there's other like Leonard Peltiers you know people are trying to create Leonard Peltiers and should create a list so that's in the works right now there's a group called the Water Protector Legal Collective uh check them out um they do a lot of work uh, with incarcerated people specifically around um like, you know, uh, anti-extractive protests or even just in general, they've been really great. Um, and they might have more resources on that right now. And I think that their website is uh, waterprotectorlegal.org. Uh, this is from Risk Inverse. In your book, Our History is the Future, you end with, quote, for the earth to live, capitalism must die, end quote. From your perspective, what can we do as individuals and what can we do to organize to bring this about? I, I personally take umbrage with this question because this is what our whole show is about. Have you not been paying attention? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a bit of a big question for Nick, but answer it as best as you can. Yeah. Nick, can you Listen, fix it? <laughs> I mean, the, the answer is in the, in the, in the question is organize. Like that's what we need in this moment more than ever is, is organize, organize, organize. I, I really am like, again, like I'm pessimistic that the current mechanisms in place can actually save the future of this planet, like for at least human life, um, the way that we know it today. And that, I, you know, I, I don't know what to say. I don't want to get, I don't want to go down that dark path, but organize. We need, we need that, you know, we need that more than ever. Uh, the next one is from the cheat one three one two. Do you have any book recommendations about the land back movement? Um, I don't because there isn't like a. I mean, other than like the Red Deal, if you haven't read it, because um, we do talk about land back. Um, there are various kind of like perspectives on that, but I I would say that we tried to kind of uh, cr- create a synthetic approach to it in terms of. Like thinking of it from a broad perspective, looking at North America, but I mean, again, that like you know, there's different, there's different kind of movements, and I can't give you like a good, good like uh, like 
book that like specifically covers it. There was a Landback magazine that was published through NDN Collective. Um, it's on hiatus, but I think it's going to be, they're going to pick up another issue. It was a limited run, uh, sadly, but um, there was some cool, like it was like global perspectives. You know, they had like Palestinians and, and uh, like people from all over the world. So that was super cool. Cool. Um, and so what's next? Yucca Mountain Johnny. This is um, occupations bring awareness, but have a finite lifespan. What are the most critical actions that should be taken in parallel with an occupation to help ensure that any gains of the occupation persist after it ends? I think one element that I've seen in my own work that I've been trying to work more on uh, and have been inspired by other efforts to do this, but oftentimes occupations result in the confrontation of two kind of forces. Like if you remove the police for a second, it's it's between like uh, extractive industry workers and land defenders. Uh, And the majority of those extractive workers are in unions. um, And we need to educate uh, unions because these unions also have indigenous members too. It's not like there's like unions are non-indigenous but to educate people that when they are going to these indigenous led blockades, that they're crossing a picket line. Uh, and we need to be build working class solidarity to educate, um, you know, union members that they shouldn't be crossing a picket line. You know, this is a community that set up a picket line to defend their livelihood for a specific reason. And you need to learn why, you know, uh, but also to recognize that you have indigenous union members, you know? And so I think that's the biggest, um, uh, tension right now i mean there's the whole thing about the police uh, that puts us in a different realm than just like looking to ngos all the time for uh support and guidance i think they do okay work but that's not a movement right that's just an ngo and so understanding that these movements need a ground game too in in, in large urban centers um not just on the ground and, and you know d- directly challenging pipelines and things like that that's important but it should have there should be multiple sites and we should also take the fight to uh, the polluters and not just like go out in these rural, like geographically isolated areas, but also understand that these places there's like, you know, headquarters, uh, they have workers that, you know, like there's a whole element to this that we have to, we have to understand. And I think um, that's, you know, that's my, we're, we're really far behind on that, but I think uh, that's where I would like to see this. So if you're in a union, you know, get on this, get on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool. All right. Well, um, so we've got one more here. Oh, it's another one from Peanut Butter Princess who is asking, what kind of sites or accounts are recommended for keeping informed about news with regard to land back and native movements? Is it recommended as a white person to join native organizations with the goal of listening and learning? And are there recommended ones to join? There are a lot of different sources. I read all kinds of different things. Like I, you know, let me just, I still use RSS feeds. I don't know if anyone oh. knows what that is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel but, like those uh, need to make a comeback. We need to just like destroy I, Twitter for good. At, yeah. at this point, at this point, Twitter's fucked and Google is also really bad. So, you know, so like I, I, I look at a lot of different things. I mean, I, I look at like, um, I mean, I just like we're, I'm on a, I'm in an organization, so I, I we get this information. So it's like you're automatically like subscribed. We used to have kind of a news channel that we would post publicly, but we haven't, you know, we've been kind of lax on that for because we we're going through some internal 
uh, restructuring. Um, it's taken a lot of time and energy away from the kind of more media stuff, but we do used to, and we're hoping to get back to this kind of more public facing media approach and highlighting movements and doing analysis. Um, we used to do newsletters. I think we're trying to move back to those as well to kind of like give a comprehensive and synth- a synthesis of like the movements that are going on. Uh, but you know, like I, I follow like, uh, I guess, Indian collective. I follow like, I mean, there's just like the normie kind of new sites like Indians.com. Uh, Indian country today is pretty good for the most part, just like general kind of native uh, stuff. But yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I think um, Indian country today had a couple good um, pieces on Leonard's case that I, yeah. that I had read through just last night. But um, Native yeah. news online does a lot of uh, covers a lot of like uh movement stuff too so i I really i recommend those i'm trying to think of what else there's other ones i just can't think of them off the top of my head it's like asking a fish to describe water (laughs) oh cool that's um heaps um awesome cool well um yeah i think that wraps up all the questions that we've got um yeah uh is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or plug or anything while we still got you um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head other than just, you know, if you are in the United States, uh, you know, go to, I think it's the Indian Collective website. There's a lot of campaign material about the Leonard Peltier work and how you can actually support. Um, there's also whoisleonardpeltier.info um, that has a lot of resources on his case and how to write him. Uh, please write him, you know, write your political prisoners. Um, you know, always like remember that the movement uh, is in all of us. It's not just like, you know, this individual or the spokesperson. Um, so we all, we have all, we all have a part to play. Um, and again, just get out there and organize. Like we really, really need it. Like we, all of us do. I don't care if you're white or whatever, like the whole thing, like there's a question about, can a white person do this? It's like you have, like there are spaces you can organize, like, like it, you know, follow move native movements, support them. That's cool. But like, you know, like we, I don't like this whole thing about like, it, like uh, creating this positivist identity around like being white and whatnot, but we do need our own spaces at the same time. So like you're an adult, you can navigate that. Like we're all human, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I found like in a lot of spaces, it's, it's, it's generally pretty obvious. And I found like with, um with Maori stuff, it's like, it's usually pretty clear you know like or someone will be like hey this is just for you know yeah. like people that are mana whenua from this area like people that you know kind of um have like a tribal kind of like interest in this area whatever like that um you know but usually it's like oh but if allies are interested you can check out this or something else yeah. or you know whatever like um i've never particularly found that there was like any like that there was too much kind of like obscurity there but um yeah, but I maybe I've just been really lucky, you know. Um <laughs> like I think there's um there's and it's never um I don't know, it's like it's I, I don't think it's 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 rude to ask and be like, Hey look, I'm a yeah. I'm an ally, I really I really love what you're doing, I support your work. Um is it cool if I come along and check it out? Um, you know, like if not, that's fine, whatever. And yeah. I think that like most yeah, I, I think that's a pretty reasonable kind of, um, pretty reasonable conversation to have. Um, all right, cool. Well, um, yeah, thanks for coming along. Thanks for, um, joining us. 
and talking about all this stuff and um answering all these good questions hang on tim there is one thing but i think that nick has um probably already sort of touched on this already um i don't suppose you have any particular ideas of homework other than what you've already suggested (laughs) oh man i'm i do that for a living so (laughs) maybe like we could tell our chatters to watch the leonard peltier oh yeah yeah yeah, I would also recommend you read The Red Deal. Um, that really gives our political position on a lot of these things. Oh, the other thing that I think y'all should read that I, I've always just really enjoyed is the uh, 2010 uh, Cochabamba Accords. Find those online. Um, those are just really good. It's better than a Green New Deal. It's indigenous, you know, focused. And I think it actually provides a, a really useful framework for about thinking about like decolonizing the atmosphere land back um you know looking at nations that are plurinational like settler colonialism i think in the united states kind of glosses over or tries to flatten um the the plurinational the multiplicities of different you know groups in this country um so i think it, it provides a really beautiful framework and how to think about that on a local but also a global scale and it's also like rights of nature too i think there's this kind of liberal framework that like that kind of defangs the rights of nature movement um and i coach obama and also there you know uh what's his name oh gosh he was a mari uh legal jackson uh, um uh matua moana jackson yeah he just yeah. passed away just recently yeah 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 he was there he helped draft these no, he's, he's, he was amazing. His work is great. I got a bunch of his books and stuff. He was, um, yeah, he was, um, quite close with, um, yeah, a friend of mine and, well, friend of the show, Emmy, who we were always saying is going to come on some week soon, but never quite happens. I was going to um, ask you about that. It's like the, 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 when I think of Mari communist. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah no, we're, um, we're a pretty tight crew. There's, um, I mean, I feel like there's, there's, there's like quite a lot of us. We all know each other and all we're all yeah. like, you know, like tangentially related in some way as well. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, um, so yes, yeah, so the homework is read the, um, read the Cochabamba, um, agreement. Also check out the red deal. And also if you want bonus points, um, the warrior Leonard Peltier documentary is on YouTube. The, I think the director of the, of the documentary has put it up on her own account. It's like, you know, it's high quality. It's not like a little 480p rip or anything like that. It's really good. Easy watch. Um, I would, yeah, I, I watched it yesterday and it was, uh, it's great. It's a great one. Um, it is from the early nineties. Other stuff has happened since then, but, um, yeah, it's a great summation of the entire thing, not just his direct case, but all of the, um, the context and, um, stuff surrounding it so check that out as well but um yeah awesome well thanks for coming along um and yeah if you ever want to come back have a chat to us about anything else if you've got a cause that you think needs uh any any more attention to we would love to have you back um absolutely thanks for coming along yeah thanks for having me awesome thank you nick take it easy nick all right talk show bye um yeah awesome show Awesome. Awesome. Um, that means 
sweet listeners, sweet chatters, anyone watching on the VOD channel, uh, it's now time for us to tell you about the amazing opportunities available to you at the Red Planet Patreon. That's right. What a segue. So good at that, aren't I? Uh, you could go to patreon.com forward slash red underscore planet. Uh, and become a patron uh, for as little as two pound slash two dollars slash uh, I think it's f- f- five New Zealand dollars. Uh, so like Sprite that. mode is three dollars fifty. Three dollars fifty. New Zealand. Yeah. yeah. Um, you can get all sorts of awesome benefits, and we are trying to, as we mentioned uh, in the mid part of the show, to raise enough money to get a editor on board who will edit things for us, so we can put them on TikTok or YouTube or another video platform that I don't know of. Um, So please consider that Mm -hmm. in your decision to become a patron. But why don't you tell us uh, some of the the amazing benefits of Sprite Mode, Kira? Uh, I'd love to, Mule. I also like to add, uh, in addition to what Mule said, by the way, that um, if we also are trying to raise money to do Red Planet documentaries, um, so if you're ready made one about the Zad and uh, it's going to be awesome. But also Sophie and I want to arrange travel to Atlanta in America. So Sophie and me, and maybe even other of the more of the hosts <gasps> want to travel to Atlanta, Georgia to do a, a red planet documentary about cop city. Um, so re- please become a patron, even, even for the smallest amount of, $2 a month. Oh, she's muted. Oh, she's muted. She doesn't oh. even know she's muted. She's just, I'm oh. muted. I'm, I, I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> For as little as $2 a month, uh, aka how many pounds? It's two. It's two. Two. And then <laughs> how many New Zealand? $3.50 New Zealand. All right. No mute. There okay. I'm not mute. Okay, you know, hang on. All right, I'm back officially. I'm not doing push to talk anymore. <laughs> Sprite mode for $2 a month or all the other amounts that we just talked about. Get started for your support for Red Planet by becoming a Sprite. Benefits include the sacred and forbidden knowledge that you are helping the Red Planet team, early access to VODs, access to the Red Planet Discord, and supporting us. Uh, and also, you will have access to the upcoming uh, podcast that we're doing, which we will be formally announcing soon. Whoa. Yeah, so much stuff just for two bucks so a month. Come stuff. on. But what if I want to support Red Planet? Being a cat, a couple more things. What can I do, Tim? Uh, so the next step up, if you want to, is a goblin mode for New Zealand, $17.50 a month, um, $10 American, and probably about £10. Is that right? £8.50. £8.50. Pound, £8. Um, you can get goblin mode. Uh, everyone loves goblin. We all get a little goblin from time to time. Complete your gobology by going goblin mode with everything from sprite mode, a pack of cool Red Planet stickers for you to stick in legal places and only in places like that. Uh, and access to exclusive Red Planet Discord Hangouts. Um, so, yeah, so if you go Sprite Mode, you get into the Discord, but Goblin Mode and up, we do, like, live Hangouts where we, like, it'll be, like, a couple of hosts will be hanging out, watching, like, 
a TV show, documentary, something, and just talking about it, having a little bit of back and forth directly with each other and with chat and stuff. Um, it's a, it's, you know, less formal than our already informal Red Planet process. But, um, <laughs> yeah, no, but that's a lot of fun as well. Um, yeah, like what we've done in the past, we've done, yeah, like documentaries we did. Um, there was one where me and Kira did some Star Trek episodes and talked about the the themes, the politics in there. Um, and yeah, we've got, we've got a bunch more coming up. We'll, we'll um, announce uh, when we've got another one of those coming up. But what's, um, what's, what's after that, Mule? What's, what's the next step up the ladder? Thanks for asking, Tim. It's beast mode. Uh, £17 a month, uh, $20, $20, $25, I think. Uh, and uh, in New Zealand dollars, it's got to be like 35. $34.50. Yeah. Wow, oh, that is so close. close. Uh, holy shit, are you actually going to go beast mode? Well, then we can offer you all the stuff from the other lower tiers and pin badges. Yep, pin badges. Wear your excellent new Red Planet pin badge literally everywhere. It's completely cool and good to do so. Uh, legal as well, so you know it's good. Uh, but listen... There's, there's something else. There's some, there's some people out there just aren't satisfied with being a sprite, a goblin, or a beast. And some people are just sick, aren't they, Kira? And what can we do for them? What's the, the, there must be something we can do. Well, for our perverts, we have sicko <laughs> mode. <laughs> for <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> a, a producer does not approve of this segment just for the record sicko <laughs> mode for a hundred dollars a month or for like 172 a month new zealand or for mule I'm sorry, I'm typing in the chat how much Conrad hates us. Uh, <laughs> if you, uh, it's 85 pounds, 85 Thank British you. pounds. If you support us this much, we can only really reasonably offer you all of the stuff from the lower tiers plus a very special thank you message at the end of every stream. So thank you to our three sickos, JBP, Nerlon Starfire, and Queen Pib. Holy moly cannoli, y'all are ridiculous. Three. Thank you. Three, Holy moly three sickos. Mm. Thank you so much. Amazing. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So, also, I um, want to mention that we have merch, queer existence shirts, and totes available at mercenarycreative.com. <gasps> I really need a, I love this shirt that I got, by the way. I love it. There and I live go. in like a cop town and I love wearing it around. It's just super fun. <laughs> Queer existence is resistance. There's our beautiful Sophie demonstrating yeah. just how absolutely adorable you can look in one of our own of our planet merch shirts. You'll never, right there. you'll never be quite as beautiful or adorable as Sophie, but you can get close with this shirt. You can <laughs> you can up. almost almost get get close you'll almost have the sex appeal of a red planet host if you buy the shirt and wear it imagine yeah <laughs> um but so that's uh mercenarycreative.com if you want to grab <laughs> so yeah so um and next week we uh we're here we are so we next week we've got um jamie pick coming on to talk about cop city stuff which obviously we talked a bit about already this week um and yeah obviously like i mean all this stuff like cop city land back 
um, even like the over policing of, you know, like native communities and, you know, like environmental activists, this is all like this all overlaps. This is our, this is our one struggle that we're always talking about. So, um, next week, James is going to come on. Um, she's been teasing some kind of, um, big announcement, I think sometime this week in regards to it. So, um, in regards to the situation in general. So whatever that is, um, yeah, you want to find out more about that. You can hear it here next week on Red Planet. Um, but yeah, why don't, Kira, why don't you tell us a little bit about how people can find you, uh, in the meantime? Sure. Um, you can find me. Uh, just find, go to my link tree, linktra.ee slash Kira Chats, but all my stuff is under Kira Chats. All of my not safe for work unmentionable websites are Kira Chats. Mm-hmm. Uh, my Twitter, uh, my blue, it's blue, or twitter.com slash Kira Chats, blue sky, or no, sorry, Kira Chats dot BSKY dot social, um, blue sky, uh, my discord, discord.gg slash Kira Chats, which we do a ton of community stuff together. Uh, so follow me in any of those places. Right now, I am, streaming on twitch that's my that's my full-time job is twitch.tv slash chats and i'm currently doing a Baldur's gate 3 playthrough this is a brand Ooh. new stab for me to try playing any of these types of games before so chat's been really helpful it's been really fun <laughs> i've been dressing up as like a different kind of elfin variant every day amazing um, yeah it's been really fun so uh, we're gonna play more tomorrow so just oh, you know hang out with me there twitch.tv slash chats but mule we're friends, right? Oh yeah, we're friends like in real life. Like we're actually yeah. friends, real I life. Just, it's since you're my friend, I would love to know how can I help support my friend. What you can do is you can go to patreon.com forward slash DJ Mule, DJ M-U-E-L, and become possum tier or above, because today I have finally fucking released my first ever Patreon exclusive content, um, which was supposed to be a monthly thing. It is going to be a monthly thing moving forward. I don't know what I was thinking. I decided to review, like, maybe 30 fucking movies in one video, so it ended up being, like, two hours long. So you could go and check out that absurdly long uh, long video there. Some of the movies that I review include uh, Pink Flamingos, The Whale, and uh, Malignant. So all those, you can hear all my opinions Pink on flamingos, those movies. Eh? Pink Ooh. Flamingos, yeah. I will just say that, like, Pink Flamingos, it, oh boy. It's a, it's it, a time. It's, a it's, time. it's not a good time, but it is also <laughs> a good time, but it isn't, but it awful. Oh yeah. boy, Kira, you're, you would not no, no way. You're not going to no, watch that no movie. No, no way. Never watch that. No, never. don't watch it. Um, you will never yeah. watch Pink Flamingo. It's vile. It's absolutely vile. Yeah. Um, but in a lot of ways, there's some good bits. Anyway. Yeah, so, but... Yeah. It's, yeah. it's just, it's just vile. Uh, but yeah, so like, uh, yeah, I, I review a bunch of different fucking movies. Um, and, uh, you can hear my opinions on all those things if you go to patreon.com forward slash DJ Mule, uh, and become either a possum tier, which is five pound a month or above. Um, if not, then I will accept a goblin tier, which is two pound. I mean, it's not great, but you know, whatever. Um, and failing that, then I guess just, you know, like, share, retweet all my content over at linktree.ee. failing that. Forward slash, mm. just because it's a failure, isn't it? It's mm. a failure to not support this, this me like that. This greedy streamer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm trying to listen. I'm trying, you know, get in on the Kira Chats brand. I'm oh. trying, but yeah, you, know, you gotta you 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 crush them, and then they're like ah, and then you lift them up a centimeter, and they're like so grateful. That's, That's how you do it. That's how That's you do how it. You do it. Mm. Um, but yeah, go to linktree.ee forward slash DJ Mule. All my stuff is there. Uh, but Tim, sweet Tim, what about you? You can find me here on uh, on Twitch and over on YouTube as Conquest of Dread. Or you can find me on Twitter and Blue Sky as Dread Conquest. Um, yeah, mainly I haven't been I haven't been streaming that much. I was going to stream a bit this month because it's like Twitch's like Maori language month thing, um, which I did a lot of streams for last year. But just with the moving and stuff, I have been busy and I completely forgot to reply to their email. So sorry, Twitch ANZ, if you're watching. Um, sorry about that. But so I'm probably not going to be streaming this month. Um, but uh, yeah, who knows? Sometime in the future. I said last time that I would like to do some Baldur's Gate streams, but I'm thinking maybe after I finish the game, I'll just load up a shitload of mods and do a modded playthrough and we can really... You know, we can see how deep that rabbit hole goes. But um, <laughs> yeah, until then, you'll just see me on here, Red Planet. Um, yeah, and Soph isn't here, but we can give out uh, give out all her links anyway. Um, so Sophie from Mars is Sophie from Mars and pretty much in everything. If you look up Sophie from Mars, you're going to find... Sophie from Mars. Um, <laughs> the, um, the Patreon, the big one, uh, patreon.com slash Sophie from Mars. Um, yeah, Blue Sky, Twitch, YouTube, all Sophie from Mars. If you just go to the link tree, linktree.ee, Sophie from Mars, you'll see everything there. And, um, yeah, uh, she's got a great new video called The World Is Not Ending. Uh, you can look that up on YouTube. A great big one that, um, she spent a lot of time on. It's really good. Um, and yeah, she's off. She's been in France filming footage for our first proper Red Planet documentary. So that's coming up soon. Um, yeah, but, uh, she'll be back on the stream from next week, I'm assuming. Uh, cool. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks everyone for coming along and we will see you next week with Jamie Peck for Stop Cop City. Um, fingies out in the chat for that one. Fingies out. Fingies out in the chat for that one. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Red Planet. If you enjoyed the show, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell all your comrades about it. Find more on the show, including where to watch live at redplanetshow.com. Follow us on Twitter and TikTok at red underscore planet underscore TV. And there's even more at our Patreon, patreon.com slash red underscore planet. Our music is by Jasper Byrne. Red Planet is produced by Conrad Zimmerman in association with Mercenary Creative. See you next week.